You are listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast. Palmolive Soap, your beauty hope, and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. (laughs) To most people, a warm May day suggests a drive in the country or a leisurely picnic. But to Our Miss Brooks, who teaches English at Madison High School... It has a far different significance. Yes, indeed. To me, a warm May day means just one thing. Mr. Conklin, our beloved principal, is putting the heat on. (laughs) Some people feel that Mr. Conklin makes the teachers miserable because of his thoughtlessness. I don't agree. You can't make so many so miserable so often without giving it plenty of thought. (laughs) Well, but perhaps I'm being too harsh in my judgment. A principal's life can't be all a bed of roses either. There must be many nights which he spends tossing and turning in his bed until the wee small hours, hoping, planning, thinking, saying to himself, What can I do to them this week? (laughs) Well, during a free period last Friday morning, his nocturnal efforts seemed to have borne fruit. He started an impromptu quiz without prizes. Miss Brooks. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yes, Mr. Conklin? Conjugate the verb strive, please. Strive? Uh, strive, strove, thriven. Now, thrive. Thrive. Thrive, throve, thriven. Oh, no. (laughs) Really, Mr. Conklin, these sudden little tests are quite disconcerting. I don't... Uh, Silence, Miss Brooks. We're not finished. Yes, sir. More verbs? Five. Five. Five, five, fo, (laughs) thriven. Now, wait a minute, Mr. Conklin. Five isn't a verb. Uh, thank you, Miss Brooks. I knew my visit to your room would produce some valuable bit of information. <laughs> now, my main reason for dropping in, however, was to ask you to do me a favor, Miss Brooks. As you know, Sunday is Mother's Day. Yes, I know, Mr. Conklin. Thanks to a special savings plan I started in February, I was able to send my mother a card this morning. <laughs> but what did you want me to do for you? I'd like you to take this package home with you and keep it until Sunday morning. It's a little Mother's Day remembrance for Mrs. Conklin, and I don't want her to stumble upon it before time. Wonderful woman, Mrs. Conklin, and she's trained our daughter, Harriet, to be a duplicate of herself. Really? Yes. Yes, between them, they're the two biggest snoopers in the county. (laughs) That makes it unanimous. Uh, I mean, I'll be happy to keep the package for you. (laughs) Thank you, Miss Brogan. I hope my daughter Harriet remembers Mother's Day. Lately, she's had her mind on nothing but that moronic manager of the baseball team, Walter Denton. (laughs) Uh, Walter isn't so bad, Mr. Conklin. Of course, he's not a brilliant student. Brilliant? Walter Denton is Madison's gift to (laughs) subnormality. The thing that annoys me most is the way he bounces. He never goes anywhere. He always bounces there. Miss Brooks, I just thought I'd bounce in for a minute. <laughs> well, if it isn't the human handball. Oh, hello, Mr. Conklin. If I'm interrupting anything, I'll just bounce along. No, until... Walter. Mr. Conklin was about to dribble back to his office. <laughs> that is, you were finished with me, weren't you, Mr. Conklin? Right. Good morning, Miss Brooks. Goodbye, Mr. Conklin. Hasta la vista, Mr. Conklin. I learned that in Spanish. It means see you later. Oh. Well... No se lo veo a usted primero. Ah, what does that mean, Miss Brooks? That means not if I see you first. <laughs> now, what can I do for you, Walter? Well, I need some advice, Miss Brooks. 
And as is my wont when I want advice, I've hied myself to my favorite English teacher. For that matter, my favorite any kind of teacher. Are you sure it's only advice you want? Oh, sure, Miss Brooks. It's about a Mother's Day gift, but a very special type of mother, Miss Brooks. That is, well, I know it's impossible right now, but just for supposition's sake, suppose you woke up one day and found yourself a mother. I have a mother. Of course, she's miles away. (laughs) No, Miss Brooks, I didn't mean it that way. I mean, if you awoke to find that you were a mother, now what would your first question be? What did it weigh, Doc? (laughs) Are you sure, Miss Brooks? Are you quite certain you wouldn't say, how is my husband? Not me. I might say, who is my husband? Miss Brooks. My dad told me that was my mother's first concern after she knew that I was all right. You know, she thinks of us constantly and never of herself. But me, what do I do in return? I don't get out of bed when she wakes me. I leave my clothes all over the house. Sunday's Mother's Day, Miss Brooks, and I've got to make it up to her. Well, that's pretty short notice, Walter, but I have a suggestion for you. You have? Yes. Sunday morning, wait till your mother starts to make breakfast. When you're sure she's in the kitchen, close the door quietly behind her. Then? Then gather up all the clothes that you've scattered around the house. Then? Then put them in a big suitcase. Then? Then run away from home. (laughs) I'm just teasing you, Walter. There's only one way you can make your mother happy, and that's by turning over a new leaf. Well, I'll try, Miss Brooks, but meanwhile, just supposing again, oh, what kind of a present would you like if you were a mother? Oh, I wouldn't care much about presents, Walter. I'd just be happy if I had all my beloved children around me. Gee. Well, of course, my mother only has this one beloved child. Me. Uh, But it is a lovely sentiment. However, I'd still like to figure out a little gift of some sort. Uh, What would make a young mother like yourself happy? A young father like Mr. Boynton. (laughs) Which reminds me, Walter, it's time for me to get down to his laboratory and pick him up for lunch. Oh, did he invite you for lunch today? Of course he did, about ten minutes from now. Now tell me, Walter, were you able to find out what kind of a gift she'd like? I couldn't find out a thing, Harriet. But we've got to get her something. What's the good of naming Miss Brooks our mother away from mother if we can't surprise her with something she wants? Gee, I'm sorry, Harriet, but all she'd say was that she'd be happy with all her beloved children around her. She was kidding, of course. I hope. (laughs) Kidding? She wasn't kidding. She meant us. Oh. Now, let's see. We'll organize a committee to pick out a gift and give it to Miss Brooks. Great, Harriet. Then tonight we'll officially become mother away from Mother's Day night. Now that we're finished with lunch, Miss Brooks, I, I've got a surprise for you. Surprise? What is it, Mr. Boynton? Uh, yes. You're picking up both checks. No. <laughs> I'm picking up both checks. No. Then I give up. Uh, Miss Brooks, I want you to meet my folks. Why, Mr. Boynton, you've only known me for five years. This is so sudden. <laughs> I just found out they were coming to town myself. You see, they usually spend Mother's Day with my married brother, but Mom decided that this year it's my turn. To do what? Oh, your turn to spend Mother's Day. <laughs> That's right. You, 
You'll love my mother, Miss Brooks. She used to be a school teacher, too, you know. As a matter of fact, she worked herself up until she was a principal. You've got to get pretty worked up to be a principal. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure we'll get along splendidly. And you'll be crazy about my dad. Oh, what a sense of humor he's got. He's the one who told me the joke about the quiz master who called out, I've got a lady, doctor, but before he could ask her any questions, she stuck a thermometer in his mouth and took his pulse. Isn't that a scream? <laughs> Father sounds like more fun than a barrel of nothing. <laughs> May I ask you a rather personal question about your folks? Oh, certainly, Miss Brooks. What is it? How long did they go around together before they were married? Nine years. I see. <laughs> folks believed in long engagements in those days, I guess. Hmm? Oh, they weren't engaged until six weeks before the wedding. Six weeks? Mm hmm. Once Dad makes up his mind about something, he's greased lightning. He could have used a little greeting the first eight years. <laughs> well, I'll certainly be looking forward to seeing them, Mr. Boynton. When are they arriving in town? Oh, this afternoon, Miss Brooks. I'll have to check them into a hotel for the weekend. I've just got a small bachelor apartment. Yes, I know. You've told me about it. <laughs> Maybe your folks would like to drop over to my place tonight. I'm sure my landlady, Mrs. Davis, wouldn't mind my dusting the living room a little. Oh, that's just fine with me, Miss Brooks. That'll give my folks a chance to rest up from their trip and have some dinner before they... before they meet the girl about whom I've... well, they've heard so much. Why, Mr. Boynton, you mean you actually wrote to your folks about me? And how, Miss Brooks? I've written them many times about how gay and youthful and exuberant you are. I am? You, I mean, you have? <laughs> Darn right. I remember in one of my most recent letters to them, I, I said you were more like a pupil than a teacher. In fact, I think that was a letter in which I described you as a great, big, overgrown kid. Maybe I better take something. You should have seen the answer I got from Dad. He said, whatever you do, son, don't rob the cradle. <laughs> Jesting, of course. He, he loves youngsters. Mr. Boynton, you've given me an idea. Well, what kind of an idea, Miss Brooks? If your father turns me down when I ask him for your hand, maybe he'll adopt me. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, will continue in just a moment. But first, here is Vern Smith. Here's wonderful news, ladies. Wonderful, wonderful news. Now there's something thrillingly new in Palmolive Soap's famous beauty lather. Yes, something thrillingly new. Palmolive's famous beauty lather now brings you new fragrance, new charm, new allure. Millions of women will prefer beauty lather Palmolive over all other leading toilet soaps the minute they try it. For Palmolive Soap's famous beauty lather now has a new, clean, flower-fresh fragrance for new allure. New charm. So, ladies, forget all other beauty care and use Palmolive soap the way doctors advised for a lovelier complexion. Just stop improper cleansing and instead wash your face with Palmolive soap three times a day, massaging Palmolive's wonderful beauty lather onto your skin for 60 seconds each time to get its full beautifying effect. Then rinse. That's all. All types of skin, young, older, oily, respond to it quickly. Don't wait another day to try Palmolive's Beauty Lather. You'll be thrilled by its new fragrance, new charm, new allure. Thrilled again by the fresher, brighter complexion doctors prove may soon be yours. For new loveliness all over, use big, vast-sized Palmolive in tub or shower. Music 
Well, I hurried home right after school and put Mr. Conklin's gift to his wife on my dresser. Then I started to make myself and the house as presentable as possible before Mr. Boynton's parents came over that evening. First of all, I shampooed my hair and set it in pin curls. Then I put on an old, oversized house dress, which I'd borrowed from Mrs. Davis. This intriguing combination achieved the happy effect of making me look like a pat rack drowning in a Quonset hut. <laughs> then I went into the living room to get things in order. When I got there, Mrs. Davis had just finished vacuuming. Oh, uh, Connie, will you pull the plug out for me? My back's been bothering me lately. Oh, certainly, Mrs. Davis. There. Hey, this vacuum cleaner's pretty old, isn't it? Yes, indeed. But it's held up remarkably well. I bought it in 1932. 1932? Yes. This Hoover came in when the other one went out. <laughs> well, just so the place looks nice and neat for tonight. You know, I've never met Mr. Boynton's parents before. I know you haven't, Connie. And first impressions are so important. Mm -hmm. That's why I sent our sofa and all the chairs out to be recovered. What? Every chair in the house is at the upholsterer's, Connie. But don't worry. Stretch Snodgrass took them down for me, and he promised to bring them back by six o'clock. Stretch Snodgrass? Look, Mrs. Davis, Stretch may be a fine athlete, but when it comes to mentality, he's strictly a third strike. Why, he's liable to forget where he took the chairs. Oh, I don't think so, Connie. You know how absent-minded I am, and even I couldn't forget the name of this upholsterer. Why not? Because he has a very odd name. What is it? What is what? <laughs> the name. Who's the name? The upholsterer. Upholsterer? Yes. Look, Mrs. Davis, the sofa and all our chairs are being recovered today. Well, they can certainly use it. <laughs> Where did you send them, Connie? <laughs> Fellow with a very odd name. I never can remember it. I'm sure it'll come back to you later. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've got to get out and back and look for our cat. Minerva? Is she missing again? Mm-hmm. She had a date this morning. A date? Yes, I heard her making it last night. <laughs> but she should be back by now. She knows how I worry about her. Well, you let me know if she comes in the front way, Connie, and I'll take a look back here. All right, Mrs. Davis. Funny, Minerva never bothered to ring before. <laughs> How do you do, my dear? How do you do? I'm Philip's mother. Philip? Yes, Philip Boynton. I'm Mrs. Boynton. But that's impossible. You won't be here till tonight. Oh, well, I mean, come in, Mrs. Boynton. <laughs> you don't have to tell me who you are, my dear. Philip has written so much about you. He has? Yes, he says Miss Brooks wouldn't know what to do without you, Mrs. Davis. Mrs. Davis? <laughs> Mrs. Davis? Yes, Connie. That's Mrs. Davis, Mrs. Boynton. I'm Miss Brooks, such as I am. We've got company, Mrs. Davis. Oh, she came in the front way, did she? Yeah, she's right here in the living room. Well, you tell him she's a wicked cat and put her under the piano. <laughs> yes, Mrs. Davis. You're a wicked cat and get under the... Oh, no, no. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me, Mrs. Boynton. I didn't expect you until after dinner. And... Oh, well, that's perfectly all right, Miss Brooks. As a matter of fact, I owe you an apology for not recognizing you. But it was rather dim in here. Not dim enough. <laughs> but where's Mr. Boynton? Or should I say, where are Mr. Boynton? Or Mrs. Boynton? <laughs> where's everybody? <laughs> 
Well, they had a little trouble parking the car, and I wanted to meet you myself first anyway. Philip's written so much about you. You must see an awful lot of each other. Well, we do teach at the same school. I understand you were a teacher at one time, Mrs. Boynton. Uh, yes, indeed, for many years. Oh, it's remarkable. You still look so well-fed. Are uh, you... <laughs> May we come in? Oh, it's the boys. Hello, Philip, my dear. Hello, Mom. Well, I see you two have met. Yes, indeed. We're old friends by now. Well, here she is, Dad. You slip me five, my dear. Five what? Oh, fingers. <laughs> How do you do, Mr. Boynton? Well, I do pretty well for an old codger. Old codger? It caught you that time, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> see, see, I told you, what a sense of humor. <laughs> He's hot stuff, all right. <laughs> hey, Phil's written us all about you, my dear. I hear you're just like a mother to Miss Brooks, Mrs. Davis. This house dress has got to go. <laughs> this isn't Mrs. Davis, Harvey. It isn't? Well, of course not, Dad. This is Miss Brooks. Oh. Why are we all standing out here in the hall? Yes, let's all go in and stand in the living room. <laughs> Follow me, please. Well, here we are. Now then, Mrs. Boynton, if you'll just come over to this lamp, that's a very comfortable place to stand. <laughs> Mr. Boynton, you stand over there by the piano. I don't understand, Miss Brooks. Where are all the chairs? They're out being recovered. I didn't expect you for hours yet, Mr. Boynton. This is a terrible thing to do to anybody. I'm sorry, Miss Brooks, but it couldn't be helped. You see, there was a convention in town, and I couldn't get the folks' accommodations anywhere. You know how big my room is, and... Well, I wondered if you and Mrs. Davis could put the folks up for the weekend. Why, Philip, I'm surprised at you. You know better than to whisper in front of others. Oh, I'm sorry, Mother. I was just explaining our predicament to Miss Brooks. She was saying how delighted she'd be to have you stay for a couple of days. Well, now, that's what I call whopping hospitality. It's a whopper, all right. <laughs> I wish you'd give me a hand with the garbage, Connie. I just can't... <laughs> oh, I beg your pardon. Uh, this is Mr. and Mrs. Boynton, and... This, contrary to popular opinion, is Mrs. Davis. How do you do? Hello, Mrs. Davis. Good afternoon, Mrs. D. Nice little place you've got here. I just invited the folks to spend the weekend with us, Mrs. Davis. If you don't mind my doubling up with you, I figured they could have my room. Oh, that's perfectly all right. Oh, Sylvia Postman. You folks must be tired after your trip. Why don't you go to bed? <laughs> only 4.30 in the afternoon. Oh, Mrs. Davis was only kidding, Mrs. Boynton. He's got quite a sense of humor, too. Now, just remember one thing, Mrs. Davis. You can't kid a kidder, kiddo. <laughs> Doesn't he get off some cracks, Mrs. Davis? <laughs> yes, he's a gym dandy. <laughs> now, if you folks will just follow me, I'll show you to your room. Or rather, Miss Brooks's room. Well, I could do with a bit of freshening up at that. Oh, nonsense, Mother. You're as fresh as the day I got you. <laughs> oh, now, cut it out, oh. Dad. Yes, cut it out, Dad. Oh, what am I saying? <laughs> Please, Harvey, stop. I don't know where he gets some of his ideas. He's terribly original, don't you think, Miss Brooks? Oh, a second Oscar Hammerstein, Mrs. Boynton. <laughs> or to put it another way, the corn is as high as the elephant's eye. Well, Miss Brooks certainly has a comfortable room, Harvey. Yes, indeed. That shower and a little catnap's just what the doctor ordered. So, 
Certainly, Harvey. What do you think of Miss Brooks? Well, it's hard to tell in that outfit she had on, but once she combs her hair and climbs out of that gunny sack, I'll bet she's a looker. Yes, but what is she looking for? Oh, now, Mother, you think that every girl who meets him immediately sets her cap for Philip. Hey, what's this package on the dresser here? Says, uh, for Mother. Uh, must be for you. Oh, wasn't that thoughtful of Miss Brooks? She got a Mother's Day gift for me when she heard I was coming. I'm going to open it right now. Oh, but Mother's Day isn't until Sunday. Well, you know I'd never have the patience to wait. <laughs> Let's see. Why, what's this? A black sheer negligence. Well, happy Mother's Day. Well, this card can't be for me. <laughs> hey, look, look, his card fell out when you opened the package. It says, for baby from her goodie. Well, so it belongs to Miss Brooks. Harvey, you don't think that Philip would... Ooh, certainly not. He wouldn't have nerve enough to ask for that in the store. Well, I am going to find out just where this came from. Oh, Miss Brooks. Yes, Mrs. Boynton? Would you come here a moment, please? Certainly, Mrs. Boynton. What can I do for you? Well, I opened the package by mistake and found this inside of it. A black sheer negligee. There was a card with it that said, For Baby from Goody. Goody? Goody? Oh, that must be short for Osgood. Why, of course, that was Mr. Conklin's gift. Mr. Conklin, the principal of Madison High? Yes, isn't he a devil? <laughs> <laughs> he asked me to keep it for him so his wife wouldn't discover it before Mother's Day. Oh, it's for his wife. Well, yes, who did you think it was for? Don't answer that. <laughs> I can tell from the position of your eyebrows. My eyebrows? Yes, Mrs. Boynton. You'd better drop them a notch. You're pushing back your hairnet. Why, well, it certainly was nice of you to invite us all to dinner, Mrs. Davis. Yes, indeed. It's delicious, too. Oh, thank you, both of you. But Miss Brooks is the one who deserves the credit. She prepared it all. Oh, come now, Mrs. Davis. You opened every bit as much as I did. <laughs> Isn't it? There's beef represented in it, yes. <laughs> Eat it slowly, Philip. Uh, yes, Mother. Yeah, they say your stomach has no teeth, but maybe it's just as well. If it got too hungry, it could chew off your suspender button. <laughs> <laughs> me when I've got a mouthful. Now, Philip, he's such a baby. Yes, he's nothing but a great big overgrown kid. Now, that's funny. That's the same phrase that Philip used in describing you in one of his letters. Well, she is, Mother. You ought to see her around the school. Why, the students just treat her like one of themselves. Oh, yes, indeed. We kids have some great old times together. Oh, I'm glad. I like Philip to have lots of useful friends. The younger, the better. Well, they don't come much younger or better than Miss Brooks, Mother. Well, thank you, Mr. Boynton. Call me Philip tonight. <laughs> I'll answer it, Connie. Excuse me, folks. I wonder who that could be. Who is it, Mrs. Davis? Oh, he didn't mean to disturb you, Miss Brooks. Oh, that's all right, Walter. I was just telling the folks how informal we are at Madison. Mr. and Mrs. Boynton, may I present Walter Denton and Harriet Conklin? Hey, how do you do? How are you? And now, Miss Brooks, we would like to present something to you that expresses the devotion and reverence felt toward you by the entire student body. What is it, Walter? It's a shawl. 
a shawl and a handsome pair of knitting needles to go with a rocking chair to which you're so attached. <laughs> rocking chair? But oh, I'm not finished, Mrs. Boynton. Miss Brooks, you have been chosen our mother away from mother. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll go to the piano, Walter, and you sing the song we went. Okay, Harriet. Wait till you hear this, folks. The B stands for the books. She helps us study. The R is for she's righteous, also pure. <laughs> the O is for the fact that she's our buddy. The second O is likewise, I am sure. <laughs> the K is for okay. She rates a bow. The yes is for her sadly wrinkled brow. <laughs> She's motherly, just like Elsie the cow. <laughs> Miss Brooks, we love you dearly. Miss Brooks, that's me. I'll always be. returns in just a moment, but first... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl. Tonight, show him how much lovelier your hair can look after a luster cream shampoo. Only luster cream brings you K. Dumas' magic formula blend of secret ingredients plus gentle lanolin. Gives loveliness lather even in hardest water. Glamorizes your hair as you wash it. Luster Cream. Not a soap, not a liquid, but a dainty cream shampoo. Leaves hair fragrantly clean, free of loose dandruff, glistening with sheen, soft, manageable. Gives new beauty to all hairdos or permanent. Four-ounce jar, one dollar. Smaller sizes, either tubes or jars. Tonight, try Luster Cream Shampoo and be a... Dream girl, dream girl, beautiful luster cream girl, you owe your crowning glory to a luster cream shampoo. And now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, several days later, Friday night came to an end. As I escorted Mr. Boynton to the front door, he was in a strangely mellow mood. You know, Miss Brooks, I'm a man of many dreams, but more often than not, I find I'm shooting too high. Shooting too high, Mr. Boynton? Yes, in trying to find the right girl, for instance. It seems that subconsciously I'm always looking for a girl who's just like my mother. Attractive, yet sweet and unselfish. Well, don't give up the search, Mr. Boynton. Someday you're liable to find such a girl right under your nose. And I think that's a very nice location. <laughs> <laughs> What I mean is, when you gave up your room for Mother, I suddenly realized that you're not only attractive, but also sweet and unselfish. So, Miss Brooks, instead of just shaking hands like we usually do... Yes, Mr. Boynton? I'd like to say goodnight to you the way I do to my mother. With a kiss. A kiss, Mr. Boynton? 
Yes, on the forehead. There you go, shooting too high again. <laughs> Next week, tune into another Our Miss Brooks show, brought to you by Palmolive Soap, Your Beauty Hope, and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, caressable hair. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, Frank Nelson, and Myra Marsh. Men, do you shave with a lather or brushless shave cream? Palmolive shaving cream comes both ways. And whichever way you prefer to shave, you'll find that using Palmolive brushless or Palmolive lather shaving cream can bring you more comfortable, actually smoother shaves. Here's the proof. 2,548 men tried the new Palmolive way to shave described on the tube. And no matter how they had shaved before, three out of every four got more comfortable, actually smoother shaves. Get Palmolive brushless or Palmolive lather shaving cream today. For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. Bob Lamont speaking. Stay tuned now for Life with Luigi, which follows immediately over most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Looking for a book that combines the Christian faith with a fantasy adventure? Creators Call does just that. 18-year-old Edward has been raised with tales of distant lands where dragons and other strange beasts dwell. He dreams of one day joining the Keepers, who fight against them to keep the land safe, however, life's obstacles keep him firmly rooted in the small town of Cadestone. When 17-year-old June comes passing through, following a dream given to her by the creator of the universe, Edward's life is about to change. Pursued by a demon-possessed man, the two of them are forced to flee to areas where dragons and monsters are not just tales but reality. June and Edward eventually discover what the demons want from them. Is it possible to defeat this evil and save everyone from the darkness that threatens their lands? Creator's Call is a Christian fantasy novel with clear Christian messages. A book that glorifies God while taking you on an adventure. Pick up a copy of Creator's Call today. P-O-S-T! P-O-S-T! Post! The serials you like the most brings you the Roy Rogers Show, starring the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. It's roundup time on the double R bar. So saddle your horse, cause we're gonna ride far. The double R bar ranch transcribes stories and songs of the real West with the Whippoorwills, the wisest trail scout of them all, Jonah Wilde, played by Forrest Lewis, the Queen of the West, Dale Evans, and in person, the king of the cowboys, Roy Rogers. <laughs> Well, howdy, folks. This is Roy Rogers. Believe me, you can count on anything bearing the brand name Post. And I'm proud to recommend Post cereals to you. So get your mom to put them on the shelf, and, well, you try them as a favor to me, will you? Well, sir, Paradise Valley, it's hot. Really hot. This is the kind of a day almost anything could happen. Money bag, right? We'll split the loot at the meeting place like we planned. 
Okay, Harris. Everything but this. I don't like meeting at this hotel. Hmm. Because Dale Evans runs it? She won't give us any protection. Our boys don't hang out here. Well, that's why I figured it was safe. Nobody going to think of us hiding out here. Anyway, we'll be heading for the desert as soon as Bailey shows up. Bailey should have gotten here before us. The law trailed you and me. He got away clean. Give my little time. Fisher, Bailey's carrying the loot from the holdup. We trusted him with that money. Eh, Bailey isn't a fool, Harris. He knows we know him and all his hideouts. He knows if he tried to run off with the loot, we could track him down within two days. Somebody's out there. Get your gun ready. Who is it? Come on in, Bailey. You got here after all. Yeah, I had a little bad luck, boys. Okay, okay. Where's the loot? Let's split it now. There's something I want to explain. I, I had some bad luck. Don't give us a lot of talk. Hand over the money. Come on, Bailey. We want to get out of here. Uh, I lost the money. You, you don't what? try to pull Wait, that I on us. help it. The law was after me. I thought it was anyway. And... Now, no, wait a minute. You're taking this all wrong. We want that money, Bailey. Right now. Uh, put away your guns. I'm not double-crossing. No, 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 don't. No, I'll get out of here. Just stop him, Fisher. Stop him. Bring him down. Get on up there and get on the street. As the shots thunder into the quiet of Mineral City's main street, Ed Bailey falls, dead or wounded. His two partners leap through the window, hit the ground, and run toward him. only wounded the law will get him and he'll talk. And that's not all. We need the money and he knows where it is. He was lying to us. As the gunmen close in on their fallen companion, Roy Rogers and Jonah Wild, Roy's partner, come out of the store across the street with gun hands ready. There's Roy Rogers. Looks like he wants in on this. Eh? Don't tangle with him. Get around back to the hotel. We'll get Bailey later on. Fisher! Harris, hold it! Yeah, they took to their heels. I'll knock them into the dust. fire, Jonah. Dale's coming out of the hotel. Yeah, yeah, there we was in that store, peaceful as could be. I was buying a doodad. You see, I was buying a doodad to brighten up my thing of a bob when crash, somebody jumped out the hotel window. Roy! Yeah, I broke the glass. Roy, a telephone call just came in th- for the sheriff. Charlie Fisher and Dick Harris with a man named Bailey held up a bank at Squaw City. Yeah, well, that explains why they didn't take the stairs. Roy, this man lying here is Bailey, Roy. Jonah, you and Dale see if you can get Bailey into the hotel. Then call the doctor. You bet, Roy. No way to do jump through a window. Come on, Jonah. I'll head around behind the hotel and see if I can't smoke out those other two rattlers. Before Roy can get around to the back of the hotel, Charlie Fisher and Dick Harris have made their plan. Inside, Fisher. Inside, quick. We can't go back in the hotel. They'll be looking for us. Inside, I said. Bailey would double-cross us. He'd curry favor with the law. He'd tell them about our desert hideout. Got to take Bailey before we leave. Roy searches the grounds, the buildings behind the hotel. He sees horses he does not recognize. And because he finds no trail leading away, surmises the outlaws are still somewhere nearby. Then he sees a sign in the dust. Footprints of two men who have gone into the hotel through the back door. Quickly, Roy enters the hotel, goes directly to the room Dale uses as an office. Dale, Harrison Fisher have come in the... Dale, Jonah. Oh, yes, Roy. What's the matter? What's happened here? Oh, I'll, I'll be all right in a minute. 
They got Bailey, boy. Yeah, we was dragging and carrying and hauling this Bailey toward the room. Well, cut it short, Jonah. Yeah, well, we opened the door here, and there they was. I seen them as I went down. One of them lambasted me on the head with his gun, and the other one got Dale. They must have run off with Bailey. But they tried to kill Bailey a few minutes ago. Now they risked their lives by coming back here. Bailey must know something, and the other two are afraid he'll talk. Yeah, well, it's a fine way to treat a veteran soldier seven, eight wars. I say, that's a fine way to treat a veteran soldier. Lambast him on the head. As soon as you and Dale feel better, we'll... Well, we're all right now, Roy. Just tell us what you want done, and we'll do it. Well, Fisher and Harris haven't had a chance to leave the hotel yet, and we won't give them a chance. We'll get some of the men on the street to watch the windows and doors while we search. We're going to find those rattlers. every door and every window, you fellas. Don't let anyone out. Okay. I'll be back as soon as I've found what we're looking for. Jonah and I are going along to help, Roy. Oh, no, you're not. Stay here and help the men guard. Now, look here. Now, what would General Thomas Kenneth Rowe say if he heard a veteran of his army consented to do only guard duty after being lambasted on the head? Why, he's Now, listen, Roy, you may need help, and I should be with you. I know every inch of this hotel, and I know every corner where they might be hiding. Well, all right. But let's not take chances. These men are desperate. They might kill rather than be captured. Roy enters the hotel, Jonah at his side. Dale walking a step behind, pointing out places where the outlaws might be hiding. They search every room, every corner of every room. But nowhere do they find the dangerous outlaws. Suddenly, Dale steps out ahead. Roy, there's one place we haven't looked. Dale! This storage closet behind the stairway here. Get back here. Don't take chances. Here, see? Raise your hand. Ah! Raise your hand. That's the girl, Fisher. Hold her. Fisher and Harris spring out of the closet beneath the stairs, shooting as they come. Bailey is with them, a prisoner. They grab Dale, pull her around so that she stands between themselves and Roy and Jonah. Oh, no, you don't. Those hands up. Don't lower them for any reason or we'll kill the girl. Stand around here. Bailey, don't you try anything funny either. Hey, you're wrong about me. I'm not double-crossing. Hey, these is a poor catch that give me the headache. Call to those cowpokes outside, Rogers. Tell them the shooting they just heard was an accident. And if I don't? We're playing for keeps. You and the men outside may take us. We know that. But if you try, we'll get the girl and you too, maybe. Call them, Rogers. We're not waiting. Tell them to stay outside. Yeah, fine way to treat an old soldier. I'm not afraid, Roy. You fellas out there, stay where you are. Never mind that shooting, just keep watching, as you have been. I'm sorry, Roy. Glad to see you're playing our way, Rogers. Now walk toward the front door ahead of us. Keep your hands above your head until you get there. And then? Then you're telling the men outside to let us go through. Now come on, start moving. All right, Fisher. We're leaving, Rogers. But we're taking Dale Evans alone. We'll keep her with us for 48 hours and have a two-day start on the law. Nobody's bothered us by that time we'll turn her loose. But if we even suspicion somebody's on our trail, we'll finish her off. Stay right here, by the door. I'm not afraid, Roy. I'm not afraid. I'll keep Bailey and the girl covered, Fisher. You step ahead and open the door so Rogers and Jonah don't have to lower their hands. Yeah. Now watch her close, Harris. Yeah. What's the matter with this door? Don't get excited, Fisher. Ah, the door's stuck. It won't open. Maybe that's because my foot's against it. What's that? Come on, Jonah. Sorry, you got him. Oh, right. you, you fell for a trick, Fisher. We're taking you for sure this time. Here's exciting news for all you buckaroos. 
It's news of that thrilling and popular club, the Roy Rogers Writers Club. I know each and every one of you will want to join up right away. Why, maybe you'll be one of the very first official members from your neighborhood. Now, in just a little while, Roy himself is going to tell you all about what his Roy Rogers Writers Club stands for and how much fun it is to belong. You'll find out, too, how easy it is for you to join. So, get your pencil and paper and be ready for the big news right after we hear the rest of our exciting adventure. Fisher and Harris hold Roy and Jonah at the point of their guns, threatening to kill Dale unless Roy gives them a guarantee of safe passage out of Mineral City. As they come to the front of the hotel, Fisher steps ahead to open the door. Instantly, Roy tries an old trick, diverts Fisher's attention for a split second. Fisher looks away. In that split second, Roy lunges, knocking Fisher's gun from his hand. He swings on Fisher, and Fisher staggers and falls. Jonah, finish off Fisher. I'll get Harris. Oh, no, Rogers, you're not coming after me. Harris has played it smart. He was not drawn into the fight. Instead, he stood guarding Dale and Ed Bailey, just as he stands now, gun in hand, ready for a chance at Roy. He steps forward, beyond the bruised Fisher, to protect him. It's all over, Rogers. Raise your hands again. Be thankful you have friends outside. Otherwise, I'd have killed you. On your feet, Fisher. Uh, sure, Harris. Oh, sure. For a minute there, my headache started to go away. You'll open the door yourself this time, Rogers. Anything to oblige. Hold it. If there's any more funny business, I will shoot. That's a promise. All right. Now open the door. Tell the men outside to let us through. Go ahead, Roy. I'll be all right. Rogers, I said open the door. Here you are. Now call to your friends. You won't have the upper hand much longer, Harris. Yeah, don't now if the truth was known. Hey, fellas, these people are coming out. They're the rattlers we're looking for, but I want you to let them go through your line. Let them go through. They've got Dale. Her life's at stake. So don't raise your hands to stop them. Let them go through your line. Hey, they're gone. They're clear gone, and we didn't do a thing about it. This is the first time I saw you whipped, Rogers. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on. There ain't nobody whipped. We just retired to regroup our lines. And the first person who says we didn't, I'll pin back his ears. See, I'll pin back his ears. Easy, Jonah. Yeah, Roy ain't whipped. I fit in seven to eight walls, as you all know. And I recognize a smart move on the part of a general when I see one. Roy, we just a minute, Jonah. They've got the best of us, and we might as well admit it. But that doesn't mean they're keeping the upper hand. We're riding out after him right now. But I want you men to promise one thing before we leave. That you'll stay here and not try to follow Jonah and me. They're holding Dale as hostage. Two men may have a chance of getting up to him without being spotted. But a posse would be seen a mile away. And that'd be the end for Dale. Now, how about that promise? Uh, good enough. Come on, Jonah. Let's get our horses and pick up the trail. Up here, Jonah. Up on these rocks. Yeah, I'm coming, Roy. Who, who here, Trigger? Who, boy? Who, who, Titus? We who? should be able to see him from here. Yeah, well, I wish, I wish I had the spyglass General Thomas Kenneth Rowe used to have. <laughs> he, he could see a sand fly crawling across the cactus at three hundred yards without batting. Hey, there they are, both of them, and Dale. Eh? Where? Headed towards Rocky Gulch. Sure enough. I'll fix him. <laughs> Hold it, Jonah. Put that gun away. I'll get to Dad, Reddy. Well, they're out of range. They're a good mile ahead of us. You're only tipping them off that we're on their trail. You'll be putting Dale in danger. Oh, yeah, that's right. 
trouble is, or a thing like this makes my soldier blood boil up. You know, I forget this ain't a long-range musket. Come on. We'll ride on down and get on the trail again. They're still gaining on us. Getting dark, Roy. Yeah, I know. The past 15 or 20 minutes, I've been having trouble finding the trail. Well, one thing's certain. Your horses ain't going to last the way they're pushing them. We'll have to stop, Jonah. Eh? For the night, you mean? Sure. We can't do anything else. Oh, but I've been on many a forced march, Roy. I say I've been on a many one. I can stand the pace. Hey, don't you worry about me. I know you can, Jonah, but we'll lose time if we keep going. We'll miss the trail or we'll use up our horses. Yeah, I suppose you're right. We'll unsaddle and rest, then start out again when the sun comes up. I'm glad General Roy ain't here to see me give up pursuing the enemy. Sometimes a man can press himself too hard, Jonah. If General Roe was smart, he'd have understood that. Yeah, well, now there's the whole trouble. That feller wasn't smart. He was dumb. Okay, okay. Well, let's get some rest. One thing sure, tomorrow's another day. Ah, doggies. Sun's hot early this morning, ain't it? Yeah, don't make no difference. We're on the trail. Looks like they mean to head straight across the desert, Jonah. Yeah, they're playing it smart, that's what. Once they get across the desert, they'll be in a different state. The law will have a hard time bringing them back. Wait a minute here. Whoa, whoa, Trigger. Whoa, boy. Jonah, you've just given me an idea. Oh, sure, it's nothing. Got lots of them. Learned them the hard way, too. See, I learned them the hard way on the field of battle. They are trying to get across the state line. And they figure to do it within 48 hours while Dale is still with them. No, sirree. I never was no parade ground, Horatio. But they're taking the back trail in order to keep away from the main roads. That adds 30 miles to the trip. And it means they'll have to go without water except for, well, what they may have in their canteens. Yeah, they'll be real thirsty before they finish their trip. They and the horses both. There's just one place on the back trail where they can get water. Last Hope Springs. Let's see. With any luck... They'll get there around noon tomorrow. Be as thirsty as a dried-up camel. Say, we could take the main trail and save that 30 miles, then cut across to the spring and be there ahead of them. Yeah, yeah, be waiting when they stagger up there all dry and parched. <laughs> I tell you, Roy, I hate to slap myself on the back, but there is nothing like a battle-scarred soldier to give man ideas. You're absolutely right, Jonah. And while we're riding, I wish you'd think up another idea how we're going to handle the situation after we find these rattlers to keep Dale from getting hurt. Roy and Jonah ride carefully to save the strength of their horses, knowing they'll be at last Hope Springs hours ahead of the outlaws. But Harrison Fisher, guarding Dale and Ed Bailey, ride under pressure, trying to make every minute count. They use their water sparingly. The heat is intense. You're going to let me stop it! I'm wounded. I'm in pain. Fisher, do something about that man. I can't go any farther. I got a fever and I need water. Pull that horse around. Get in line. No, I'm stopping. I won't go any farther. Get in line. I said nobody stopping. Wait a minute, Fisher. You'd better die and go on. My wound hurts me like this. Ah, we ought to finish her right here. No worse off than day 11. You don't hear her complaining. Yeah, but I got this wound. There's nothing you can do that would make me complain. Get down off of that horse, Bailey. You're, you're not going to kill me. Get down off of your horse. Oh, I'm sick. My throat is burning. Here's water, Bailey. I've got a little left. Don't give it to him. We need the water for ourselves, Harris. Would you like a drink, Bailey? Yes, 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 please. 
But you're the man who lost the money bag. You lost the loot from the holdup. Ah, don't talk in front of her, Harris. Why should we give you any water? Yes, but I, I hid the loot. I didn't lose it. What, you dirty man? Yeah, give me a drink. Give me a drink and I'll tell you where the money is. Tell me first, before you get a drink. In the hollow of that tree that lightning struck, just north of Mineral City, near Fred App's place. Yeah, come on, give me the water. Here. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, Harris, we need that water for ourselves. There's only a few drops, Fisher. We can get along for a while. We'll reach Lost Hope Springs by noon, and there'll be plenty of water for everybody then. The wounded Bailey licks the last few drops of water from the canteen greedily as his hate-filled companions watch. Dale alone holds herself in check, determined not to give way either to thirst or the blistering heat. Roy and Jonah have arrived at Last Hope Springs and are waiting for the coming of the outlaws. Uh, doggies, this is what I call a real hot day, Roy. It's a real hot day. It's pretty bad. Yeah, she'll be glad when it's over. If it gets over. And if we're still living. <laughs> you know, I remarked the same thing to General Thomas Kenneth Rowe during the Battle of Frying Pan Valley. Is that so? Yes, sir. And it turned the tide, too. I say, it turned the tide, too. That one little remark caused the enemy to be whipped to a frazzle-dazzle. And it just seemed like she... Oh, Roy, you ain't paying me no mind. Oh, I'm sorry, Jonah. I was just watching those four riders just beyond the big sand dune there. Eh? Four riders? Yeah. The three hombres we're after, and Dale. It looks as though our troubles will all be over, one way or the other, within a few minutes. Hey, the way they're coming, the horses must smell the water in the spring. Keep behind this rise, Jonah. Don't let them see us. You're doggone betcha. Trigger, I've got a little job for you to do, fella. <laughs> As soon as they're on the ground, I want you to run their horses off. Understand? Hey, Fisher's running for the spring, Roy. Well, when he bends down to take a drink, put a shot in front of him. Yep, just like the Battle of Worm Canyon. I'll take care of the rest. All right, let him have it. Oh! Bell, drop to the ground, quick! Have you got that pencil and paper ready? Well, hold on. Here comes a special surprise for you from Roy Rogers himself. Uh, howdy, friends. This is Roy Rogers. I'm especially pleased to be able to extend a personal invitation to you from Dale, Trigger, and myself. We'd be mighty proud to have you become a member of our Writers Club. Maybe you've heard about our Writers Club already. We've got several million members throughout the country, and our aim is to bring you lots of fun through honesty, loyalty, and friendship. And I'm sure you'll gain a lot of fun being one of our members. Of course, you'll get a beautiful membership card entitling you to all the rights and privileges as a Writers Club member. And you'll get an official badge to wear, too. Here's the big surprise. Every single member gets a big 16-page comic book in full color. This is our official Roy Rogers Writers Club book. It's packed with adventure about Dale, Trigger, Bullet, and me. And, oh, yes, you'll get a full-color autographed picture of Trigger and me. We'd be mighty proud to have you become a member, and if you'd like to be one, here are the details on how to join. Yes, friends, card, badge, comic book, and picture, all yours when you join the Roy Rogers Writers Club. And to become a member is so easy. Just take the top from one regular-sized package of any of the swell-tasting post cereals. Mail the box top with only 10 cents and your name and address to post. P-O-S-T, Box 7767, Chicago 77, Illinois. 
Now, write that down while you remember it. That's post, box 7767, Chicago 77, Illinois. That's all there is to it. Just one post serials box top, one dime, your name and address, and you're a member of the Roy Rogers Writers Club. Have fun. Join up today. Drive those horses off. Take them out of there, fella. I'll take care of the girl, Fisher. Roy, he's going to shoot Dale. No, he's not. Oh! Uh, Doggy, you stopped him. Jonah, watch Fisher. Draw on me, will you? Roy, Roy, did you see that? Did you see how the gun went sailing out of his dirty hand? Good work, Jonah. Oh, sure. General Thomas Kenneth Roy would be proud of me, all right. Hey, you hombres, listen. You're without guns now and without horses. You'll get no water unless you surrender. What's your answer? Dale, come this way. We'll cover you. Dale walks toward Roy and Jonah. The outlaws stand where they are. Fisher's face, burned by the sun, streaked by sweat and alkali dust, is blank. Harris, from head to toe, is filled with rage. A rage which goes out of control for a moment. He's whipped. He knows he's whipped. He'll go to prison if he gives up. But if he doesn't give up, he holds himself in check. Then says unsteadily, We surrender, Rogers. We're your prisoners. Walk this way. Keep your hands over your head. We got him, Roy. We got him. The three men come forward slowly. Bailey, weakened by the effects of his wound, drags himself across the hot sand. Within minutes, Trigger has rounded up the horses. The outlaws are securely roped, and then with Dale at their side, Roy and Jonah ride herd on the gunman towards Mineral City. I don't want another ride like my last one, I can promise you. Jonah and I were worried about you for a while, Dale. Weren't we, Jonah? Yeah. One good thing, though... They hadn't taken me. We might never have found out where they'd hidden the loot from their holdup. Yeah, some good came out of it anyway. Jonah, you're not saying much. Well, I'm thinking. Thinking? About what? Well, sir, today at the Battle of Frying Pan Valley, when I remarked how hot it was to General Thomas Kenneth Rowe. Yes, sir, it is, Joni. <laughs> he always called me Joni, General Rowe did, yeah. It's too blamed hot to fight, he says. And he walked off the field. But I thought you said you won that battle. Oh, sure. Well, yes, we did. Washington got so mad at the general for walking off the field of battle, they fired him. Yeah. Yeah. He went and joined the other side, and he didn't know nothing without me to advise him, so he led the other side straight into defeat. And we won. Brother. I bet. Now, Dale, don't you start doubting Jonah's word. He's my hard-riding sidekick, and I wouldn't be worth anything myself if it wasn't for his advice. Oh, no, sure. Uh, Jonah, here's your gun. You uh-huh. dropped it back there during the excitement. I, I guess you kind of forgot to pick it up. Oh, sure. <laughs> Chores are over at our ranch house on the plain, and all I've got to do is lay around. I saddle up my pony and ride off down the trail to watch the desert sun go down. Canyon to watch the sun go down. A picture that no artist there could paint. 
hear a coyote whining for its mate. Cactus plants are blooming, sagebrush everywhere. Granite spires are standing all around. I tell you folks, it's heaven to be riding down the trail when the desert sun goes down. Riding down the canyon to watch the sun go down. A picture that no artist ever could paint. This is Roy Rogers saying to all of you, from all of us, goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. See you next week. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. The Roy Rogers Show is brought to you by week at this same time, with the Whippoorwills, Forrest Lewis, Dale Evans, and the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. An Art Brush production transcribed, directed by Tom Hargis, script by Ray Wilson, music by Milton Charles. Featured in today's cast were Frank Hemingway, Howard McNear, Bill Green, and Leo Curley. This is Art Ballinger speaking for P.O.S.T. Post Serials. Happy trails to you. the clouds if we're together. Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. For a Christian sci-fi with humor, adventure, and a touch of romance, read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey.
travel with Jarl through the universe and several dimensions as he unearths items to help those struggling to survive on Earth during the catastrophic conclusion of the age. Gracegrows.com has more information. Read Quantum Spacewalker, Jarl's Journey by Grace S. Gross. Tonight's story by Norman Partington is entitled The Redwood Tree. sight. Unavoidable. Want to take a look-see through the theater like Mr. Harris? I wouldn't dispute the word of the surveyor, Wilson, but I'd like to see for myself. Now, where's the focusing knob? No, it's already in focus. All you have to do is look through it. Yeah? Yeah, I've got it. Hmm. Just where the shoulder of the road would come. Devil of a size, ain't it? Hey, Fletcher, you seen this? Yeah, I've seen it, Mr. Harris. Not to worry. We'll take it down all right. A day to lop the tops off, and two days for the base cutting, and, well, four days to saw up the carcass and clear it away. It might take a few days to get the roots clear. Seems a pity. That tree must have stood there for hundreds of years. Two thousand years would be a fair estimate, Mr. Uh, Harris. Huh? Uh, so speaks our landscape gardener, eh, Smith? Landscape designer. A gardener at heart. And I agree with you. It would be a pity for you. Pity had... nothing. We got a contract to push this road through Northern California up into Oregon, and no redwood, giant or otherwise, is going to stand in the way. Swish, and down it'll come. Your heart is like your machine, Fletcher, just a metal pump. You see in your path a tree, a redwood, as you call it, but actually a sequoia sempervirens, the oldest living things on Earth, plants where Cleopatra was a little girl. And this particular one looks like the granddaddy of them all. I'd say it's 200 feet high and probably 28 feet in diameter at the base. So right. Then I'll tip my hat to it before I cut it down. Assuming it will let you cut it down. Assuming what? Are you off your nuts, Smith? It's just a tree, isn't it? How we got axes, power saws, bulldozers, dynamite if need be. And what gives? Just two little days and that dear old redwood will be lying prostrate, ready for trimming and carting away. Maybe. <laughs> but the Indians consider it a sacred tree with strange powers. Used to be worshipped at one time. Made a mild objection three days ago, and one of the loggers nearly had his fingers taken off when he was trying out a new accident. Man, you get the nuttiest ideas. It was an accident. You're an Indian too, aren't you, Smith? Four-fifths. Plus one-fifth enterprising Anglo-Saxon. Actually, my ancestors came from around these parts, between Northern California and Oregon. Well, how come Tom Smith? That's no Indian name. Folk tongue of pale face, no get round Indian name. <laughs> Hence, my hey. parents decided that even the Americans would have no difficulty with Tom Smith. Right, that's enough, Joy. Let's get moving with a road to build. Right. 
Fletcher, collect your equipment and start work on that tree. Okay. We should reach that point in two weeks from now. You other two come with me in the trailer caravan. Right, you we can manage three at the front. Come along now. Let's get going. As a surveyor, Wilson, do you think it's possible to make a slight shift to avoid cutting down that tree? Not a chance, Mr. Harris. You'd probably need an act of Congress for a couple of inches deviation. I shouldn't let Big Chief Tom Smith worry you too much. This Big Chief isn't worrying. Just dismayed. I think me too. When a tree's been standing there for 2,000 years, well, it seems a crime somehow to think of cutting it down. I never thought I'd hear construction chief Gregor Harris getting sentimental. I heard you once blasted a mountain apart to put a road through. Earth and rocks are not trees. Just pull over there. There it is, Fletcher, in its full glory. How are you going to tackle it? Well, I'll send up a couple of tree jacks, and they'll take the top 50 feet off. And then they'll move down and take off another 50 feet and so on. Lop off 50 feet up there with a tree that thickness? <laughs> you know, the trouble with you surveyors is you ain't got no practical sense. Tree jacks don't use axes and something this size. They got portable power saws. We just haul them up at the top, set them in position, and switch on. Takes less time in cutting through than in getting them into position. Mr. Harris, in all seriousness, I wish you would reconsider. This kind of tree has a mystique for Indians. They're not going to take its destruction any too kindly. And there's an Indian village near here. Sorry, Smith, but it's got to come down. Go ahead, Fletcher. Right, Mr. Harris. Okay, boys. Get that stuff over here. Right. Uh, you two tree jacks shinny up the tree. You got your spike nose boots on? Yeah. That's good. We'll get up there and make an inspection. Throw down a light cord when you've found a spot, and we'll haul up the power saw. Now, you just watch that first one, huh? Hold it. Where did you spring from, mister? Hey, there. I don't take kindly to having a shotgun pointed at me. Have no fear. The gun will not be used unless you try to harm that tree. Harm it? What goes on here? Who are you? Are you one of the locals? He's a full-blooded Indian, Mr. Harris. Take him at his word. That tree belongs to us, and you may not harm it. Too many big trees have already been cut down. Our land is bare of them, but this one shall stay. Now, don't try anything crazy. You're not going to risk murder just for the sake of a tree. Now, why don't you put down that gun and push off back to your village and we'll forget we ever saw you? Yeah, the Americans would like to forget they ever saw the Indian. Look around you and see what you have done to our land. Oh, now, this is getting ridiculous. It's like something out of a bad movie. Well, okay, then. If you want to keep it as a bad movie, then we signal for the 7th Cavalry. Smith, get over to my caravan, transmit a call to road headquarters, and ask them to get a squad car up here. Yes, sir. Now, look, it's been half an hour since we made that call. The police will be here soon. Now, let's settle this thing before they come. Now, you know I've no authority to take the road anywhere except where the plans say. We don't like the idea of cutting down that redwood, but for Pete's sake, it's in our way, and it's got to come down. So, are you going to kill me? Take an axe to this tree and you will know the answer to that question, road boss. This tree belongs to my village, my people. 
It is the last of the... Hey there, Indian boy, take it easy with that gun. What in tarnation goes on here? Policeman, come no closer if you want this boss man to live. You darn fool, you want to commit murder? Well, take a look at my patrol car. Two of my boys got Winchester's aiming straight at you. You'd be dead the minute I give the word. Now be sensible and drop that gun. I do not mind dying, but the boss man here will not like to die. This is crazy. You want to kill somebody just for a tree? Just for a tree and for a principal. Heck, Mr. Harris, this has got me beat. I, I could have this guy killed with a snap of the fingers, but think of what the press would... Oh, boy, and here they are now. Cameras to the front. Look, hey, 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 you guys, look, get out of here. Hey, Smith, while they're distracted, get behind the tree. There's a bullhorn there that Fletcher used to talk to the tree jacks when they're up the tree. Yeah? Switch it on full and, uh, and boom something out. Beat it, you guys. This is a private argument. The police seem to fear the press more than they do the criminals, Mr. Bossman. I don't think that any publicity this gets is going to save that tree or your neck if you use that gun. Oh, hey, right. Hey, I got him. I got him. The grab is gone now. Oh, okay. Hold him down. I'll get the cuffs on it. So, you think that once more a trick has defeated the Indian. But you think wrong. It has defeated only me. The sequoia still stands. And there are no tricks that you know powerful enough to defeat it. Well, take him away. Uh, uh, a few months in jail cool him down. Thanks, Sergeant. That was a near thing, but uh, I'd rather not press charges against him. Especially now the press have got hold of the story. Oh, you don't need to press charges, Mr. Harris. The police will do that. We can't have gun-totting Indians threatening to blow people's heads off each time they cut down a tree. The holy sequoia will defeat you in the end, boss man. You will never cut it down. It has power you will know about. Leave it before it destroys you all. Smith. That was a bright idea of yours and Wilson's. And I never want to come so close to death again. I just hope you're doing the right thing, Mr. Harris. Now look, Smith, I'm getting a bit tired of this. Fletcher, get on with the job. Right, Mr. Harris. Okay, you tree jacks, start climbing. Yeah. Now, when you get to the top 50 feet, drop your cord to haul up the power saw. Power saw rig? Yeah. Hey, watch those electric cables. Don't twist too much. Uh, drag it over the branch on your left, huh? To your left, right? Is that okay? Yeah. Poor old Sakai. They are indeed spirits inside you. Now is the time to accept your fate with calm resignation. Saw in position. I'm switching on power now. How long for the first topping, Fletcher? Oh, about half an hour. It's so thick, even up there, they'll have to take three cuts at it. Redwoods aren't so easy to cut, but we should, uh... Oh, for, for Pete's sake! Quick! One of the tree jacks! How's that other tree jack? He's all right. We got him down. The ambulance should be here soon. 
Now let me lace that coffee with a bit of brandy. You look as if you need it. Here, steady on. Your hand's shaking like the devil. Well, I... I just can't believe it, Mr. Harris. I had checked the motor, the dynamo, the, the whole machine. I inspected the power cables and the saw. They were perfect. Perfect. I suppose there will be an unquest, Mr. Harris. Yeah, there'll have to be, Wilson. Has Smith come back yet? Hey, just coming in the caravan now. How'd it go, Smith? I've just been talking to the other tree, Jack. He said there was nothing wrong with the machine. They'd set it up and started sawing. Things were going quite normal when suddenly his mate slapped at his face just as if a wasp had stung his cheeks. It upset his balance of the saw he was holding. Well, it, it slipped down onto the power cable. It had cut through it in a second. It, it shorted. He, he was electrocuted. Dead, even before he fell from the tree. Sequoia seems to have claimed its first victim. I don't talk such rot, Smith. Next thing you'll be claiming there's a juju on it or something. That's what my ancestors have believed for centuries. And it seems it's what the local Indians still believe. You're a man with a college degree, Smith. Surely you don't subscribe to this kind of superstition? You know, Wilson, I'd like to scoff and put it down as so much primitive nonsense. But that four-fifths Indian blood in me warns me otherwise. Do you realize what that sequoia's cost us so far? Yeah. One man with a finger lopped off. Another man dead. An Indian facing several months in jail. $3,000 in broken equipment. Two days lost work. Don't you think I'd be justified? No, you wouldn't. You'd simply be fired and return and another construction boss would come in on the job and rip out the tree. You'd be cutting your own throat for nothing. I know. We're having another go at it in the morning. Fletcher's decided to abandon the technique of topping, and he's going to attack the base of the trunk direct. I've moved up the big bandsaw, Mr. Harris. It's going to be a long job to get through 28 feet. We're making four cuts, one from each side, because no bandsaw could ever get through that thickness with one cut. I uh, won't ask if you've checked the equipment, Fletcher. Checked and double-checked. There isn't a screw on the big machine I have on examine. All right. Go ahead. Generator, start up! Well, that's working all right. Start up, tractor motor! Raise saw blade to height of six feet. Right. Now take it easy now. Tractor move forward to take first bite. Slowly. Easy does it. All right, pressure on saw. Into tree. Well, it seems to be biting all right. How long do you think, Fletcher? An hour? An hour. More like three hours for the first cut. And then we'll move all the equipment to the side. Hammer in wedges and start the second cut. Sawing and it's only cut in nine inches. It's a hard wood, Wilson. Harder not, Smith. These band saws will cut through them. I've even tried them on lignum vitae, the hardest wood in the world. And you know. Cut the power! Cut the power! I beg you. It's claimed its third victim. That band so cut through jumps on the operator. I saw it, Smith. You needn't go into details. I apologize. 
But as the man responsible for redesigning the landscape adjacent to the road, I could easily make a feature of the tree if you'd only deviate a mere 80 feet to the west. And at this stage, that's not impossible. Darn you, no! Fletcher! Yes, Mr. Harris? Is the ambulance gone? Yeah, a few minutes ago. But what intonation caused that accident? Smith will probably say the tree's evil spirits. But the real cause was a fluke. When the tree jack was electrocuted and fell down from the top... You know those long metal spikes they wear in the toes of their boots? Well, in falling, this was jammed into the base of the tree and torn off. It wasn't noticed because it had happened after I'd made my first inspection of the tree trunk. And when the bandsaw cut into it, zing! A blade snapped and whipped around on the operator. Can't you see the omens, Mr. Harris? The last time, keep your darn mouth shut, Smith! Fletcher, I want that tree down tomorrow. Blast the base of it with dynamite and blow it over. Ouch. I'm going to need about 15 sticks, Mr. Harris. And then we'll have to notify the police and get them to clear the immediate area. Then notify the police and get the dynamite prepared. A ring explosion around the trunk will kill once and for all Smith's superstitions. Hey. Hey. Hey, what goes on out well, there? Forty of them at least. Women and children as well, all patiently sitting in a ring around the tree. Must have taken up positions before dawn broke. Oh, heavens, not again. I just couldn't face it. <sighs> I'd better notify the police and have, have them shoo them away. Yeah, That coffee, Wilson. Yeah? Nip a brandy in it, please. Yeah, that other Indian was a tough one. But I got a feeling this is going to be tougher. Why? They're not armed, are they? Well, not so far as I can see. Yeah, let me borrow your binoculars. Huh? Here. Thanks. No, the... They ain't armed. About four men and the rest women and children. Just sitting there impassively all around the tree. Hey! Hey, you know something? Four cars of reporters drawing up. TV news cameras oh, as well. Oh, no. What have I done to deserve this? All I want to do is get on with my job and build a road. Oh, wait till I get my pants on and I'll go out and have a powwow with them. Oh, you better get on the radio telephone and notify headquarters. It'll have to be the blasted police again. All right, all right, Smith. I know what you're going to tell me. I've seen your Red Indians on the ruddy warpath. I'm just setting up my Gatling gun. It's more serious than you imagine, Mr. Harris. Now, look, Smith. In a few minutes, the police will be here, and your dear Red Indian squaws and whatever will be gently moved on. Nobody's going to hurt them. We are not going to hurt them. But they're going to hurt themselves to save that tree. Oh, balderdash. They don't go when they're told to. The police will just pick them up and gently move them away. Come outside, Mr. Harrison. Bring your binoculars with you. Let me tie my boots first. How do you see her, Mr. Harris? No, not yet. There's some leaves and branches. Yeah, yeah, there she is. Halfway up the tree. Now focus very sharply and tell me what you see. Huh? I see a young woman. An Indian woman, she looks like. They're standing on a branch halfway up the sequoia. She's got a... Smith! What the heck? Now you can see her quite clearly. There's a rope around a branch above her. she got a noose, a noose around her neck. She's not dead. No. She's not dead. 
But with the slightest movement, she soon would be. Oh, they're crazy, the whole lot of them. I've been up to them. And they won't say a word to me. They, they just sit there looking into space. They all speak English, don't they, Smith? Of course. The national language of America. Didn't you know, Mr. Harris? Now, don't be flippin', Smith. Now, look. Do you still speak their local lingo? Yeah, quite fluently. Are you deputizing me to to powwow with them? Yeah, and don't be so darn smart. See what gives. And tell them to get that woman down. Wilson, uh, do you think we uh, ought to summon a fire brigade or something? It'd take half an hour for the nearest one to get here, and that woman only needs half a second to walk into space and into eternity. Now it's up to Smith to see what he can do. Try to keep back the reporters and photographers, Mr. Harris, and I'll go alone to them. I'll try to persuade them, but knowing my people, they won't be persuaded. Please, not again. My great-granddaddy fought in the Indian Wars, but I thought we'd smoked the pipe of peace since then. Here's the binocular, Sergeant. Here, take a look. Halfway up the tree. Right. Morning, Sergeant. Mr. Harris, I've had a word with the leader of them. And we have two options. Go on. First, we take our road round the tree and leave the sequoia untouched. On the second? That we move on them and on the tree, and the young woman will step into space and... And hang herself. Man, if she did that, we could never get up that tree fast enough to save her. True. They know it. Did they tie her up there? No. She climbed up quite willingly. You can see she's not tied up. Just the noose loosely around her neck. A woman willing to commit suicide for... For a tree that means something to the people. And the woman, incidentally, is the wife of the Indian you arrested. She feels she has nothing to lose except her life. There's about 40 cameras up there focused on the tree. And they got two television crews. Well, Mr. Harris, the ball's in your court. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do, Sergeant. I'm going to order you to shift those people, and then I'm going to blast that tree down. And then now hold on there, Mr. Harris. This thing's kind of getting over my head. I think I'm going to have to report back to the station and get some clearance before I start making rushes on them Indians. I ain't hankering to have a suicide on my conscience. The sequoia is now out for blood, Mr. Harris. If you mention that kind of pulp again, Smith, I'll just about strangle you. It'll be unnecessary, Mr. Harris. For the person your actions are about to strangle already has a noose about her neck. Use some sense, Harris. And some humanity. Sergeant, remove those people. I've got a job to do. Then let the responsibility be on your head, Mr. Harris. Come on, boys. Move on the rails. Uh, that's the radio telephone. I'll answer it. Yeah, Wilson here. Mr. Bear. No, he's just left. What? They who? Hold on, I'll try and get him. Hey, Mr. Harris, urgent. It's the governor around the telephone. Coming. Yes, sir. Harris here. Yes, sir. No, we were going to... Yeah, she's still in the tree. No, we haven't... Yeah. Yes, sir, I understand. Yes, sir, right away. 
About a hundred feet west. Yes, sir. Bye, sir. Smith! Sergeant! Hold everything! Hold it! Sergeant! Here's the loud hailer, Mr. Harris. Smith! Sergeant! Stop! Don't do anything! The governor has told us to divert the road. The tree will be left alone. Smith, tell them that. The tree will be left alone. That was a mere squeak. The police had started moving forward when we heard you. The girl. Did they get her down safely? She's down. And she's safe, Mr. Harris. And you told her? Yeah, I told her that the governor had ordered her husband to be freed and that no charges would be pressed. Wow, I must have been out of my mind. Anyway, let's get this road built. <laughs> I must admit, Smith, that Sequoia's got some pretty powerful spirits looking after it. Plus one four-fifths Indian with crest enough to alert the state governor. High Adventure is produced by Henry Duffenthal. unhappy people. You're going to hear a story, and then you'll know why they're unhappy. This is the exciting story of Moses and the flight from Egypt. The people of Israel lived in Egypt, but they were not free. An evil pharaoh made slaves out of them. But this pharaoh was afraid that there might be too many Israelites, so he issued a terrible command. When children are born to the people of Israel, all the boy children must be killed. The girls can live, but the boys must be killed. And that's when Moses was born. The mother of Moses didn't want her newborn son to be killed, so she hid him among the bulrushes down by the river. And Moses' sister, who loved her little baby brother, hid herself but kept watch over little Moses until the Pharaoh's own daughter came to the river and found him and pitied him. Then Moses' sister came out from where she was hiding and suggested to the Pharaoh's daughter that she could get a Hebrew woman to take care of the little boy. The Pharaoh's daughter said, Yes, get this woman. 
and the sister of Moses ran home and returned with her mother. That is how Moses was given into his own mother's keeping by the Pharaoh's own daughter. And when Moses grew to manhood, something amazing happened. Moses will tell you the story. An amazing thing did happen. One day, I was tending my flock of sheep when suddenly a fire broke out in a bush. I ran to put it out, but then I saw that although the fire burned, the bush stayed fresh and green. I fell to my knees because I knew the Lord must be near me. Moses, my servant, I am the Lord thy God. Oh, Lord, what can you want of me? Listen carefully, Moses. I have heard my people crying out because they are slaves to the Egyptian pharaoh. I want to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them to a good land flowing with milk and honey. Go to them and tell them that I have chosen you to deliver them. But, my Lord, they won't believe me. They won't listen to me. They'll say, the Lord never appeared to you. What are you carrying in your hand, Moses? A rod. Cast it upon the ground. Very well. There. It's changed into a serpent. Don't draw back, Moses. Put out your hand. Take the serpent by the tail. I will, because you command me, O Lord. I am afraid, but... There. What has happened? The serpent has become my rod again. Yes, Moses. And if the people will not believe you, you can do this for them. And by this sign, they would surely know you had talked to the Lord. Yes. Yes, but, Lord, I am not eloquent. I speak slowly. Take Aaron the Levite with you when you talk to the people. I know he can speak well. Let him speak for you. Yes, Lord. But remember, it is you that I want to lead my people from the land of the Pharaoh. I went to Aaron and told him what the Lord had said to me. He was most amazed and most humble. And together we went to a group of our people. Listen, please, my people, to what Aaron has to tell you. Children of Israel, 
We are slaves. I can see you do not like being slaves. I come to you, or rather Moses comes to you and asks me to speak for him with wondrous news. The Lord God Jehovah himself wants us to be delivered from slavery in Egypt. How can any man know that? Because the Lord has appeared to our brother Moses. He asks that we follow Moses. That Moses will know what to do because the Lord will tell him and that we shall take our lead from him. Wait a minute. I want to know what Moses is going to do. What's his first step? No, don't you answer, Aaron. Let Moses speak for himself. You have a right to know, Amos. All of you have a right to know what I will do. With Aaron by my side, I will go and speak to the Pharaoh himself and warn him that our God wants our people to be set free. What do you say to that, children of Israel? Yes, yes, yes. And so Aaron and I went to the Pharaoh. We refused to leave his palace without seeing him. And finally... Well, now, who are you that you have insisted on seeing me? My name is Aaron, Pharaoh. And I am called Moses. An Israelite? Yes. Well, what do you want? Pharaoh, my brother Moses has spoken with the God of the Israelites. In coming here, he is doing the bidding of our God. Our God wants us to ask you to let our people go from Egypt. (laughs) Forgive me for laughing, Hebrew. But what makes you or your God think that I would let so many slaves go free? If you do not let our people go, the God of the Hebrews may smite Egypt with his mighty and terrible hand. Well, now, is that so? I will tell you how I am going to reward your impertinence. Not only will I not let your people go, but now I shall require of them that they must continue to make the same number of bricks each day as they have been making. Only now they won't have the materials handed to them. They will have to find the straw for the bricks themselves. Pharaoh, that is too harsh. You cannot make bricks without straw. Well, they will have to. And we will see what your God We'll do about that. Oh, my Lord and my God, where are you? Appear to me. Please, please. What is the matter, Moses, my son? I have failed. The Pharaoh told Aaron and me... Yes, I know what he told you. But now, O Lord, my people are required to make bricks each day, and they have no straw. They cannot make the bricks without it, and so the Pharaoh's men beat them. Lord, Lord, what can be done? Tell the people that I am the Lord and that I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And tell Aaron to stretch out his rod over the rivers of Egypt, the streams, 
the rivers, the ponds. All the water of Egypt will become blood. And the Pharaoh will then talk to you again. Now go. And so Aaron and I went once more to the people and told them what the Lord had said. They're not pleased, Aaron. I know. Perhaps they need time to think. What's that you say? We need time to think? I don't need any time to think. Amos, you must listen. You two men are going to hurt all of us. We are doing what the Lord has commanded us to do. I don't believe it. All right. You said that Aaron would hold his rod over the waters and the water would change to blood. Well, there's the river. Go ahead. Hold your rod out toward it and let's see. All right, Amos. I shall. Ha! It won't change to blood. Aaron, stretch out your rod over the water. People of Israel! Aaron thinks he's going to change the water into blood. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, look at the river. Look at it. It's too red. He did it, Father. He did it. Guard, bring them up here, quickly. You sent for us, Pharaoh? Moses, Aaron, all the rivers have turned to blood, and the fish have died, and we Egyptians cannot drink the water of the river. That is because you've hardened your heart against the people of Israel. Will you let our people go, Pharaoh? No. Aaron? Yes, Moses. Do as the Lord told us. Stretch forth your hand with your staff, and cause frogs to come up over the land of Egypt. Frogs? Yes, frogs. There. My hand is out. The frogs will come now. Frogs. They're coming in here. Please, please take away the frogs. I will let your people go. Aaron, stretch out your hand and cause these frogs to go. There. Well, Pharaoh, I was a little upset that the frogs are gone now. I'm not going to let your people go. Why should I? The frogs have gone forever. Oh, Lord, please appear before me. Explain, Moses. I know what has happened. The Pharaoh said he would let our people go. And then did not keep his word. I know. Moses, this will happen often. Time after time, you will have to prove to him the power of your God. And time after time, he will promise to let the Israelites go. And again, he will not keep his word. But in the end, he will. 
I promise you. Now do the things I have told you to do. Yes, my lord. And so, as the Lord commanded us, Aaron once more held out his hand, and all the cattle of Egypt were stricken with the plague. And as the cattle were dying, once again the pharaoh begged us to stop. And once again we did. But again... No, no. Your people will remain here as slaves. And next we brought upon Egypt a pestilence of flies. Stop it! Drive away these flies! I will do anything you ask to get rid us of these flies! So we caused the flies to disappear. But again the pharaoh failed to keep his promise. Oh, deliver us, deliver us. So the Lord brought down a great fire and hailstorm on them. And a terrible plague of locusts that swarmed over all the crops in Egypt. And each time, the pharaoh begged us to do away with the insects, or the fire, or the storms. And each time, he promised to let the Israelites go. But each time, he refused to keep his promise. Why should I? I am the ruler of Egypt, and I require your people as slaves. refused to keep his promises to you. And now I will bring one plague more upon him and upon Egypt. And will he let us go this time? This time, yes. About midnight tonight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn of Egypt will die. Even the firstborn of the Pharaoh himself. But the firstborn of the Israelites? They will not die. I shall pass over them. And forever after, the Israelites will celebrate this night as Passover. Now go and prepare your people to leave Egypt. And at midnight, the Lord took the lives of all the firstborn Egyptians, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoners in the dungeon. There was not a house where there was not a death. And a great cry went up in Egypt that night. Pharaoh, will you let my people go? 
Moses, Aaron, take the children of Israel with you and go. has done for us what he said he would do. Yes. But now it is going to be a long journey to the land of milk and honey that he has promised us. Ah, a long journey, you say? <laughs> An impossible journey, I say. We'll never complete it. The Lord says we will. Do not doubt the word of our Lord, Amos. Now you're still talking as if you and the Lord were partners. Now look. Look there ahead of us. There's the Red Sea. How do we get across that, I ask you? We must cross this sea if we're to leave Egypt. The Lord told us how. Aaron will hold out his rod, and the waters of the Red Sea will part so that we may walk across. Ha! Aaron, hold out your rod. Yes, Moses. There. So thousands of Israelites walked across the Red Sea where the Lord had parted the waters for us. But when we were on the other side, we heard a sound like thunder in the distance. It was the Egyptian army riding to overtake us. Moses, we can never get away from them. I know. What will we do? I know what to do. We should do what Moses told us to do all along. We should trust in the Lord. We're all going to be killed. I told you so. No, Father. Trust in the Lord. Here they come. Crossing the same path that the Lord made for us through the Red Sea. Look, the sea is swallowing us. of the Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea. We had put our trust in the Lord, and the Lord had saved us. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that is the story of the flight of the Hebrews from Egypt, an escape from slavery that was made possible because, as the little boy in the story said, they had put their trust in the Lord. This story came from the book of Exodus, in your Bible. Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows today from your favorite online bookstore. Around 
Dodge City and to the territory on west, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The story of the violence that moved west with young America. The story of a man who moved with it. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. morning, Mr. Bumby. Huh? Oh, hello, Marshal. Uh, oh. Morning, Mr. Dillon. Morning, Sam. Is, uh, Kitty around? Oh, don't know she's up yet, but if she is, she ought to be down soon. <laughs> well, I'll wait. Nippy this morning. Oh, feels good. It's a nice time of year. Huh? Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of like spring myself. Uh, Sam... You better wash that glass over. Hmm? Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, can I get you something? Beer, maybe? Uh, got any coffee? Sure. Just made a bottle. Oh, that'll be fine. Her face is something wonderful. That's pretty, man. <laughs> you got a pretty voice. Oh, yeah. Good enough for calling hogs, I guess. <laughs> yeah. you, you just got up? A while ago. Why? Boy, it just strikes me I haven't seen you close too early like this. Uh-huh. No, no, I, I, you look fine. I, 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 mean, I mean that you... You better quit by your head. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's... Where's Sam? Oh, he's bringing in coffee. Oh, Sam, cup for me, please. Sure, Miss Kitty. What's the occasion, Matt? Uh... Kitty, uh, there's a party tomorrow night, a dance. It's a benefit for the new school down at the hall, you know. <laughs> and uh, ever fellas to bring a girl, you, you know? <laughs> it happens at dances. Go on. Well, uh, what I'm trying to... Will you go uh, with me? I'd kind of like to, Matt, but no thanks. Oh. Well, I gotta work here. You know that. Besides... Well, you I... ought to be able to get off. Well, even if I could, ladies might not take kindly to it, Matt. I'm not rightly polite society. Ah, what do you care about? What the... Well, thanks anyway, Matt. Ah, that smells wonderful. Sammy, I think I'll marry you. <laughs> Me? <laughs> shucks. <laughs> Me? Oh, shucks. <laughs> Uh, listen, Kitty, about the dance, I, I've already bought the uh, you're, you're sweet, Matt, and I thank you kindly for thinking of me, but you better ask someone else. Well, it, it isn't... Ki Sam, will, will you go and polish up your glasses, please? Hmm? Oh, sure, Mr. Dillon, sure. Mm -hmm. 
Now, look, Kitty, I'm asking you to go with me. You... Well, it's important to me that you go. Are you making love to me, Matt? At this hour in the morning? No, no, I, I mean it. I, I want you to go to the dance. You want to be embarrassed. You want everyone to stare at us. You know what they'll say? My, my, the marshal really should have better sense than to bring that woman here. It ain't decent. It ain't proper. <laughs> oh, kid. Well, it's true. I'm a hostess at the Texas Trail, a, a saloon. You know what they think about me. Well, I... Will you go, Kitty? No. I'll call by for you at seven, huh? I'll drink a bottle of whiskey and clout some old biddy on the head. Then you'll be sorry. Oh, Kitty. I haven't got anything to wear, Matt. I can't wear my working clothes. You look just fine like you are, Kitty. Just fine, just like you are. Marshal. Yeah. I shouldn't, but I guess I'll go to the dance with you. <laughs> I'll be ready at seven. How do you talk about a woman like Kitty? The color of her hair, eyes, the shape of her leg, the way she spoke, thought. Well, that's a picture you had to get by looking and hearing. Otherwise, you, you'd never know it. And I felt real good about taking Kitty to the party. The first time we'd really be out in company. And I liked the idea. Mr. Dillon. Good morning, Chester. Nice day. What is that? That, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, all over my desk, that. Ink. Yes, sir, I know. I was just cleaning it up, Mr. Dillon. Seems like a big blue bottle fly, last of its kind this fall, I guess. Big fool blue bottle fly was a setting on your desk, Mr. Dillon. Oh, you're slopping it all over the floor, Chester. Yes, sir, I see it. That lazy fool blue bottle fly was a stomping all over your desk, Mr. Dillon, and I took a whack at him with a paper I happened to have in my hand, and I got him. Well, thanks a lot. Well, that's all right, Mr. Dillon. If there's anything in this world I hate, it's a big maggoty blue bottle yeah, fly. Yeah, 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 I know, Chester. Uh, the mail come in yet? Yes, sir. A couple of minutes ago. It's right over there. Oh, okay. I think that should do it, Mr. Dillon. All right, Chester. Anything likely in the mail, Mr. Dillon? No, no. Uh, look, Chester, uh, we better get these government circulars posted. To... Would you do that for me? Yes, sir, I'll do that. Uh, say, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? About the dance tomorrow. Now, what about it? Well, you're going, aren't you, sir? Doc's going. He's taking Ms. McNish. I'm going. Everybody's going. You are going, aren't you, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I'm going. Don't seem right, a man. You're standing not to go to a big social like we're... You are? Yes. Well, that's fine. Just fine. Doc and, and me, we were talking, and it just didn't seem right to us that a man like you didn't have no real nice sweet girl to escort to a big social. I got one, Chester. A real nice sweet girl. I'm taking Kitty. Miss Kitty? I asked her before I came down if she accepted. Well, that's good. Miss Kitty. Uh, that's right, Chester. Uh, 
I uh, got to get a couple of letters off to Washington, Chester. You, you want to go and see about posting those circulars, huh? Yes, Mr. Dillon. Ah, fine. What is it, Chester? Well, Mr. Dillon, it it ain't none of my business, and I, I did not have no right to say it. Say what? Well, sir, I... I... Yeah? I was wondering if I might borrow one of them fancy ties off you for the party. That's not your business. That's what you haven't got any right to say. Yes, sir. No, that's... Right. You're a liar, Chester. But you can borrow a tie. I thank you kindly, Mr. Dillon. You work for a long time with a man, and you share a lot of life and a lot of death. And after a while, you, you know him even better than yourself. Well, that's the way it is with... Chester with me. Now, he had something on his mind, and I figured after a while he'd get it off. Well, the morning went, and it was almost noon when Chester came back. Gonna go have some dinner, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, I think I will. How about you? Hungry as a raggle-bone possum. <laughs> Did you get the posters up? Yes, sir. Well, okay, let's go. Uh, Mr. Dillon? Yeah? I guess there's something you ought to know, sir. There's talk. Yeah. All right, Chester, come on, get it out. It's all over town. About you taking Miss Kitty to the dance tomorrow night. What do you mean, all over town? I only asked her this morning. Yes, sir, I know. Best I can figure, Sam over at the Texas Trail must heard you and let it slip. There's been a mighty fierce mess of gum clobbering up and down all over. All right. Uh, thanks for telling me, Chester. It ain't none of my business. Yeah, I know. You said that before. Yes, sir. I surely did. Well, let's go get something to eat. It's hard to tell about people. Maybe it's hard to tell about yourself because you come under that same heading, people. And when they're mean and small, there's not an animal to touch them. Chester and I walked down the street, and it didn't take long to hear and see what was going on. Some of the drifters leaning against the wall on the corner came right out with it. Morning, Marshal. I understand there's a Galantine's got herself a new boat. What did you say? <laughs> Maybe you ought to look into it, Marshal. Folks are being downright rude. Mister, you're going to... Come on, Chester. <laughs> Ought to haul him in. Everyone. Yeah. What are you going to charge him with? Pestilence, Mr. Dillon. Just plain pestilence. Pestilence. 
I knew better what Kitty had meant about the ladies of the town when a couple came out of Olivet's dry goods store. They didn't see me until it was too late. I'm to the committee. It's indecent, that's what it is, why she's common. Nothing but a common saloon woman. What's this city coming to when a United States marshal... Morning, Miss Sprinkle. When a man's born, they, they say he's blessed or cursed with a lot of things already in him. Take pride, for instance. Sometimes pride can be a curse. Well, maybe I had more in my share. Maybe it would have been a sight kinder if I'd not taken Kitty the dance. But I did. We will return for the second act of Gunsmoke in just a moment. But first, this hint for weekend driving. Whatever you do, be moderate. Be obedient to all traffic laws. Be careful. Use your head and don't take chances. Now for the second act of Gunsmoke. picked up Kitty at the Texas Trail at 7 the next evening. She was waiting by the side door, and when I saw her, she kind of moved back in the shadows, almost as though she was ashamed for me to see her. Hi. Hello, Matt. Are you all set? Well, I guess so. Matt, are you sure? Hey, you... Kitty, you look fine. Yeah, you look just fine. <laughs> Do you like it? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. walked along the street down to the hall, and I I kept looking at her like, like I say, you know, you, you, you had to know this, Kitty, to understand what I mean, and even then you get a surprise. She was like a 17-year-old on her first date, and she was like all the women you'd ever known and loved, soft and innocent. And something else, something that's female, and you can't figure out what. Something that makes you drunk without a drink inside you. It was snowing a little, and the flakes caught in her hair and melted into the black of her velvet cloak. And just before we went in, I looked at her again. And I didn't care. I I was proud she was with me. Oh, evening, Marshal Dillon. Evening, Miss Murphy. Uh, you know Miss Russell? I do. You have your tickets, Marshal Dillon? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ah, here we are. Fine. Uh, go right in, won't you? Oh, sure. Oh, uh, excuse me, Mrs. Murphy. Is there somewhere I can put my cloak? Oh, uh, uh, yes, yes, of course. Um, the ladies' reception room is right through there. I, I didn't catch the name. Catherine Russell, ma'am. Excuse me, ma'am. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll wait for you. Thanks. You better... 
I could see them through the big open doors in the hall. They were all there. Faces flushed, smiling, happy, dancing. And all the women seemed pretty and the men handsome. And Chester was up on the platform calling the dance and Doc was fiddling. And I was waiting for my dancing partner, Miss Kitty Russell. So long. I'm sorry, Matt. I had a skirmish with one of the genteel females in there. Oh, I'm sorry. Why says she? <laughs> you know, I get the idea I'm not welcome around here. Uh, uh, let's go in and get some punch, huh? Sure. How are you, John? Oh, that's a nice dress, Kitty. I haven't worn it since a few years back in New Orleans. Hey, Marshal! Oh, Miss Kitty! Where's Doc? Well, hiya! Oh, fine, Doc. Hello, Doc. I say, say, we got a bottle of whiskey outside. You care to join it? (laughs) Oh, this punch. (laughs) (laughs) Not right now, thank you, Doc. Oh, well, sure. Hey, Miss Kitty, I saw you come in. Best-looking woman in here. Oh, there's lots of scratching going on. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. If you see Mrs. Magnish, don't tell her where I am, will you? Man gets kind of dry, fiddling. <laughs> so long. So long, Doc. Punch, Marshal Dillon? Uh, Kitty? I guess so. Uh, Mr. Sprinkle, have you met Miss Catherine Russell? Uh, no, no, I'm afraid I haven't. You got a short memory, Mr. Sprinkle. Huh? I could have swore it was you in the Texas Trail a couple of weeks back. Drunker than a hoot owl. Don't you remember I had to slap your face? Uh, I, I think... Edward? Well, I, it, Edward? Yes, dear. You let somebody else take care of the punch. I want you to come with oh, me. Oh, well, I, I, I promised. I, I'm, I'm on the committee. Even, Miss Sprinkle. I have no wish to speak to you, Marshal Dillon, or this woman you brought with you. I will not have my husband serving such people. Aren't you being a trifle bad-mannered, Miss Sprinkle? How dare you say that? Well, aren't you? I suggest that you leave, Marshal. You're not wanted here. Not with that woman you've seen fit to bring. Come on, Matt. I want to go. No. This is a public dance, Miss Sprinkle. Right now, you're trying to make it private. If you can't behave like a lady, I'll thank you to leave this lady's presence. What? Now, see here, Marshal. Can't talk like that to my wife. Hey, Kitty! What do you say, Kitty? Hmm. Matt, please. I want to go. We're not going anywhere. We're staying. Uh, uh, how about some music? All right, all right now, folks. It'll be a wall this time. Thanks for the punch, Mr. Sprinkle. Come on, Kitty. I warned you, man. Now, please, will you take me out of here before something happens? Nothing's going to happen, Kitty. 
You and me are going to dance. Have a good time. That's all. You're acting like a kid. Matt, it won't work. I've seen this kind of thing before. May I have this dance, Miss Kitty? Please, Matt. You're being pig-headed and you know it. Let's get out. You're refusing me, Miss Kitty? Oh, Matt. We danced. But it wasn't what I hoped it would be. Kitty closed her eyes. I guess she was trying to blot it out. But I could see the other couples looking, whispering. And one by one dropping away over into a small group that got larger. There were only about six of us left when the waltz ended. That's when the stranger and a couple of his pals walked out onto the floor. They were drifters. Probably been in town for a week. And they were having their fun before they moved on. Marshal, I got a painful duty. Yeah? Uh, folks in this town seem real upset about you bringing that mm, woman in here. What's your name? Oh, I'm just a fella. I kind of made myself and my friends here a committee of three, seeing as how everything's done by committees here. And we, <laughs> yeah, we figured it would be best if you take your mm, friend home. Mister, I'm the marshal in Dodge City, and I'm. I'm leaving. You're staying here, Kitty. She's smarter than you, Marshal. Everything all right? Everything's fine, Chester. This ain't a matter of law, you know, Marshal. It's decency and, and what's right. Beyond Marshal, this ain't right. Mister, I'm taking this badge off. Chester, you stay here with Kitty. Matt, don't you do it. Now, come Matt. on outside. You. We're going to talk some more about this out there. Ah, it's cold outside. Now, you be a good fella and get out of where you ain't wanted. You know I won't hit you in here, don't you? Were you thinking of doing that, Marshal? Now, that ain't lawful. I ain't done nothing. Kitty. Kitty, wait. Now, now there's a gal with sense. All right, mister. No, I'm telling you. You and your pals are going to have to come out sooner or later, and when you do, you better start hightailing it out of Dodge before I catch up with you. We'll think of that. We sure will, (laughs) Marshal. Just three no-good drifters, hating the law, finding pleasure in trouble. Kitty had gone, and I went out into the street. It had stopped snowing. Just cold. Much colder. I went up to the Texas Trail. There was only two people in there. Some guy, dead drunk on a table, and someone else standing at the bar, looking into the mirror at me. Well, you haven't, Mr. Dillon. Nothing, sir. Yeah. Well, I, I got some things to do in the back. You give me a call if anyone comes in, will you? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, 
I'm sorry, Kitty. Joe. I'm sorry. I'm bad. Bad. Oh, Kitty. Oh, it's all right. Sure, it's all right. I'm so mad. I I could... Yeah, I know. I should have known better. No, it, it was me, not you. No, it wasn't that either. It was all those polite ladies and gentlemen. Give me a kerchief, will you? Yeah. Here. It's been a long time since I cried. Yeah, sure. It wasn't so much for me. For you, I I wanted to cry right there in the hall, watching you and knowing there was nothing you could do. Nice mess of people we got in Dodge. No, it's not them, Matt. It's me. I've run into this before. The only difference was I didn't have you around. I wanted it to be right tonight because of you. A lot of narrow-minded prayer spouting. Yeah. They hurt your pride, didn't they? No. No, it, it wasn't that. No? No, I, I wanted you to go with me. That made me real happy. But maybe we're different, Matt. You and me figure life different to them. That's not their fault. There's a lot of folks there I know. I, I smile at them on the street. They talk to me. But tonight, well, that was different. I made them uncomfortable. Yeah? Well, they didn't do a bad job with you. Oh, you can't look at it that way. And you can't go fighting the whole town, either. There's three fellas going to get hurt. No, I don't want you to do do that, Matt. You just... Let it go. Let it go, Matt. They don't mean nothing. You know what means something to me? What? That you asked me to go to the dance with you. I knew what was going to happen, but it was worth the chance. I thank you for it, Matt. You're a funny one. Am I? (laughs) But you sure showed them up, those women. (laughs) The way you look. I'm glad. (laughs) You know... You look pretty fine yourself. Sam? Yeah? Uh, you got any champagne, Sam? What? Have I got any what? Champagne. Well, yeah. I guess maybe. A bottle or two? Yeah, maybe. Well, break it out. All right. Kitty, I think the next dance is mine. Oh, Matt. I'd be real pleased, Mr. Dillon. Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal.
Tonight's story was specially written for Gunsmoke by Anthony Ellis, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Vivi Janis, Bob Sweeney, Lawrence Dobkin, and Mary Lansing. Parley Bear is Chester, Howard McNair is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal, fights to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke. Don't miss Robert Trout and his timely roundup of world news tomorrow on most of these same CBS radio stations. Roy Rowan speaking. And remember, Amos and Andy are here every Sunday on the CBS Radio Network. And good hot Ralston presents Space Patrol! High adventure in the wild, vast reaches of space. Missions of daring in the name of interplanetary justice. Travel into the future with Buzz Corey, Commander-in-Chief of the Space Patrol! In today's transcribed adventure, Buzz and Happy are on the third moon of Jupiter in their spacesuits attempting to pull Major Robertson out of a crevice into which he has fallen. Buzz has lowered Happy into the crevice where thousands of beetle-like insects are swarming. Beetles that seem impervious to the cold and lack of atmosphere. Just a couple more feet, sir. That's it, sir. Nope, they're off under the Major's arms, Happy. Just a minute, sir. Might brush off some of these insects. Some of them just won't brush off, sir. They're awful. They're on my suit, too. We'll be back in just a moment with today's Space Patrol story, The Moon Beetles. The hour has struck. Yes, today is the last time we can offer you a pair of those wonderful new space binoculars that you can see way off in the distance with. Big four-power plastic space binoculars. Five inches wide, five inches long. Plenty big and plenty of fun. Gang, you can watch people blocked away, study birds in real tall trees, read signs way off in the distance, spot planes high in the sky, and listen, you wear space binoculars on your head 
Yes, sir. A strong, elastic band holds them snugly to your eyes. Makes you look like a strange man from Mars. Leaves your hands absolutely free. Yes, the hour has struck. Today is the last time we can offer you these terrific new Space Patrol Space Binoculars. To get a pair exactly like Buzz Corey wears, do this. Buy a box of Instant Ralston. Then, with your name and address, send 25 cents in coin and an Instant Ralston box top to Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. This offer good only in the USA and may be withdrawn at any time. That's Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. And now, today's Space Patrol story, The Moon Beetles. In their space battle cruiser, Terra 5, Buzz and Happy are approaching Jupiter's number two moon to investigate the mysterious failure of equipment in one of the automatic instrument stations. Their viewscope is trained on a surface of a cold, barren, airless satellite as Happy watches for the dome-shaped image of the atmosphere shell to reveal they're nearing the unmanned instrument station. Jupiter's number two moon sure is a desolate place. Nothing but craters and mountains, and more craters and mountains. And they all look the same. I don't even recognize any landmarks. And we should have brought Robbie along. He knows most of Jupiter's satellites the way you and I know the Earth's moon. Oh, uh, uh, speaking of Major Robertson, sir, I was a little surprised to find out he was meeting us on Jupiter. Oh? Well, I figured he'd be getting ready for the big day on Terra on the third of the month. Uh, you know, the Interplanetary Medal Award ceremony. I hope we can all be there. We will if we don't run into serious trouble on this instrument failure investigation. But, sir, doesn't the Major have to be there, or... To receive the award? Well, I was under the impression that the name of the person to receive the Interplanetary Medal was kept secret until the day of the ceremony. What makes you think uh, Robbie's going to get it? Hmm? Well, I uh, I heard rumors. <laughs> well, personally, I'd like to see Major Robertson get it, too. The final decision is up to the award committee. Well, they aren't going to let the news out ahead of time. You know, we're getting close to the instrument station, Happy. See those two cone-shaped peaks at the edge of that broad, shallow crater? Yes, sir. The instrument station is right between those peaks. That's funny. What's that, Commander? The small atmosphere shell should be visible now. Maybe the sunlight's hitting it at the wrong angle. Well, it should still show up on the viewscope. Happy, the shell's gone. Huh? Switch the spacephone receiver to the ultra-high-frequency automatic instrument channel. Let's see if any signals are getting out. Yes, sir. Well, this is the right channel, sir. Some of the instruments are still sending, but... Can't understand what happened to that atmosphere dome. Uh, maybe a meteor hit it. If it came in at a tangent, it might break the shell without damaging all the instruments. Get our spacesuits, Happy, while I set the ship down. We'll make an on-the-spot check. Just south of Jupiter City? Yes, it's a technological center. 
these instrument stations on the different moons. I wonder how he'll analyze the fact that a whole act... Are you saying there weren't even any fragments of the atmosphere, sir? That's right, Robbie. The whole thing just disappeared. Mm. And none of the instruments were physically damaged? No, Doctor. Some of them stopped transmitting because of the cold. It really got us puzzled, Dr. Conrad. What do you think could have happened? Well, Happy, I wouldn't even speculate until a thorough investigation is made. Well, at the moment, Doctor, I feel this is a job for the security section. Robbie, get a lab ship and blast off for moon number two. Yes, sir. Uh, do you want me to go with the Major, Commander? Uh, you'll be needed here in Chargon, Doctor. We've got to evaluate the data from the other moon centers. I'll keep in contact with you from number two moon and give you any information I can gather. Good. Robbie, I'll leave the investigation in your hands. Happy now I'll go to our temporary quarters and get some rest. I can use a little sleep. I'll call you first thing in the morning, Dr. Conrad. Come on, Happy. Sleep is the next order. Happy, wake up. Hmm? Oh, Commander, what time is it? Six zero five hours universal star time. Are you going to sleep all day? Oh, don't be stupid, huh? I plan to be awake before you, sir. <laughs> hey, are you sure it's 6.05? Look at your watch. Yeah, but it's still dark outside. That's why I left the shade up, figuring the sun would wake me yes, up. Yes, I noticed how dark it was. Maybe we're having an eclipse of the sun. They're fairly frequent on Jupiter with 12 moons in the sky. I'm sure I should have thought of that. Uh, have you talked to Dr. Conrad? I phoned his lab, but wasn't able to reach him. <laughs> Maybe he overslept, too. From the sound of things outside, it sounds like the middle of the day. Hey, come here and look, sir. The streets are full of people. These Chargon citizens must be early risers, <laughs> or else they got up to see the eclipse. The eclipse here wouldn't cause that much excitement. What do you know? The lights are on all over the city. Well, that must be Dr. Conrad. I told the project quarters to put the call in here. Corey speaking. Uh, Commander, this is Dr. Conrad. Oh, yes, Doctor. I've already called your lab. I'm not at the laboratory. I'm at the spaceport. Can you come over? Is something wrong? Haven't you noticed the darkness? Yes. The four biggest moons must be eclipsing the sun all at once. This is no eclipse, Commander. The Shergon atmosphere shell is completely covered with insects. Insects? Yes, I know it sounds crazy, but it's true. They're blanketing the entire dome. Billions of them. Space control isn't letting any ship in or out of the space lots. They're afraid the insects will swarm into the city. Doctor, where are you now? I'm in the space portmaster's office. I'll be right over. I'm ready, Commander. And let's go. Well, here's the office, Captain. Uh, Commander. I expected you sooner. I was beginning to get worried. We were tied up in traffic, Doctor. People are running around almost in a panic. Well, I can't say I blame them. It's not exactly reassuring to know you're under a roof of billions of living insects. I didn't think Jupiter had that many insects. Where did they all come from? We don't know. One spaceship came through the lot just at dawn. The pilot said the insects are like a shiny black sea all around the atmosphere dome. I've got a few specimens here, Commander, in these two small plastic boxes. Let's have a look at them. Hundreds of insects were drawn through the space lock when the ship entered. That's why space control closed the port. Look at rockets. Look at the size of them. They must be about two inches long. They seem to be some sort of beetle. I don't recognize them. Well, I showed them to a friend of mine in the communication section, an amateur entomologist. He says he's never seen anything like them before on any planet. Very strange. Entirely new variety of insects appearing by the billions and 
Here on Jupiter, of all places. Mm. Hey, hey, one of the bugs got loose. He's crawling across the desk. You take the lid off the box, Happy? No, sir. Look, the lid is still on it. Then how did it get out? Listen, what's that? Warning signal. Yellow alert. Yellow alert. Something must be wrong with the city's atmosphere plant. Happy, quickly. Close all the windows airtight. Doctor, cut on the emergency air vents. What could be the matter? That signal means the air outside this building isn't fit to breathe. Check the Polaroid windows. All the windows are closed tight, sir. Airtight. Good. Emergency air vent on, Commander. We're all right for the time being. Yes, Doctor, but those people out in the streets, if they don't get inside a building with emergency air supply, they're in trouble. I'll get it. Courtmaster's office. Oh, he isn't here. This is Commander Corey of the Space Patrol. I see. Yes, Captain, your procedure's correct. Right, Corey, out. That was the atmosphere control center. The yellow alert was sounded because the detectors registered a high methane gas content in the air. Methane? You mean, you mean there's a leak in the atmosphere shell? More than a leak, a serious break. What happened? Look at this plastic box, Doctor. There is a, a hole in it. Exactly. That beetle ate through the plastic box. And above us, there are billions of insects eating their way through the plastic atmosphere shell. We'll be back with Space Patrol in just a moment. Presenting the mystery of the baffling basketball player. Sometimes this ten-year-old boy would be a sharpshooter. He'd make basket after basket after basket. But then, at other times, ouch, he'd miss shot after shot. And so it went. Sometimes a shooting star, sometimes a falling star. Here was the trouble. This boy was only getting supercharged now and then. On some mornings, he'd have a power breakfast with rice checks or wheat checks, the super cereals that helped us supercharge you. That's when he'd really shoot those baskets. But then, at other times... Well, he'd just eat any old breakfast. And that's when they'd call him Fumbler. The gang, remember, to be a winner every day, you have to get supercharged every day. In other words, enjoy that rice checks and wheat checks in your cupboard all the time, not just some of the time. Make it a rule to do what Buzz Corey does. Eat a power breakfast with rice checks or wheat checks every single day. The bite-sized super cereals that help to supercharge you. Delicious checks. <laughs> And now, back to our Space Patrol story, The Moon Beetles. The city of Shargon on the planet Jupiter is periled by a vast swarm of strange insects that completely cover the atmosphere shell. These beetle-like insects are gnawing through the thick plastic of the transparent dome over the city, and now the air is contaminated with the harmful gases that compose Jupiter's atmosphere. Buzz Happy and Dr. William Conrad have rushed to the atmosphere washing plant while Major Robertson, at the commander's order, is at the spaceport, ready to lead an exterminator's squadron. Happy and the doctor are standing before the giant motors that force the atmosphere through chemical filters and purifiers, waiting for Buzz to return from the office of the chief air control engineer. Oh, the engineer's just cut on another auxiliary motor. Uh, that's the last one. The plant's working at full capacity. Yeah, but so are those bugs. Oh, here's the commander. Commander, what did the chief engineer say? Oh, it's a losing battle. You just can't build up enough pressure inside the shell to equal the heavy Jupiter atmosphere pressure on the outside. Unless those insects are stopped, pretty soon big chunks of the dome will fall in on the city. 
They could plunge right through the roof. Well, do you think that DB-12X insecticide will kill the bugs, Commander? I don't know. And if I give Robbie the order to take the exterminator squadron outside the shell, that insecticide will contaminate the entire city. You mean it's harmful to human beings? Definitely. But don't you think it's worth the risk, Commander? If the dome collapses... Oh, you're right, Doctor. There's no time to waste. We'll broadcast a warning for everyone to keep off the streets and to seal their doors and windows. Then we'll go back to Space Patrol headquarters and I'll tell Robbie to take the squadron up. Commander, the streets have been completely cleared and the Major and the squadron have been spraying the outside of the dome for 20 minutes. The DB-12X ought to be showing some results. If it's going to work, I'll contact Robin. Commander Corey at Shargon Space Patrol Headquarters calling Major Robertson aboard Space Patrol Cruiser J-571. Corey to Major Robertson. Robertson here. Go ahead, Commander. Is it working, Robbie? All eight ships have made ten passes with the insecticide, Commander. The insects are saturated with the stuff, but it doesn't seem to phase them. We've got to find something that's effective and find it quickly. Well, heat might do it. We can get enough ships with atomic flame ejectors and play them over the dome. There aren't any on Jupiter. What about trying ultrasonic vibration? That's it. That'll do it, Commander. Dr. Conrad. You know of a lab ship here in Chargon that's got an ultrasonic generator in it? No, oh, yes, Commander. There is one at the spaceport. Good. Robbie, order the squadron to return to base, but you stay aloft. Happy, Dr. Conrad and I will get the lab ship and blast off immediately. Lab ship secured for blast off, Commander. All right, Hap, I'll notify space control. Manicorian Lab Ship X-211 in Area 28, calling Space Control Shargon. Space Control Shargon, go ahead. We're ready for blast-off. You may blast off at Wilter. Space Control out. Stand by to fire rockets, Happy. Standing by, sir. Ready, Doctor? Yes, Commander. Fire rockets. Here come the locks, sir. Reduce power and we'll circle back to the dome. What a sight. The dome is black with those insects. I hope this ultrasonic generator does the trick. I'd hate the idea of going back down through that roof of beetles. Dr. Conrad, will you operate the generator? Of course, Commander. That must be the major ship off on our starboard viewport. Right. Corey aboard lab ship X-211 calling Major Robertson. Robertson here. Go ahead, sir. We're going to make a head-on pass at the dome, Robbie. Good hunting. All right, Doctor. Turn on the generator. I've set it at one million cycles, Commander. That frequency should be fatal to most insects. Give it plenty of power. Yes, Commander. Here we go, right over the dome. Happy, set the viewscope to high magnification. Yes, sir. We'll circle back and make another pass. How's the viewscope setting, sir? Fine. See the insects quite clearly. Mm, they don't seem to be affected by the vibration. Uh, shall I increase the frequency? Oh, wait. Look, they're dropping off the dome. Hey, they sure are. Sliding off by the thousands. It's working, Commander. Sides of the dome are nearly clear. Would you look at that? They're sliding off like, like a black avalanche. We'll make a couple more passes just to make sure we've got them all. Look at how they're heaping up around the base of the atmosphere shell. It's going to be some job clearing them away. The first problem is to get a crew to work sealing up those holes in the dome. Commander, this is Robbie. Yes, Robbie? More trouble. I just got word that there's a plague of those beetles on moon number three. They've attacked the small atmosphere shell over the research station. That could disrupt the entire interplanetary communication. 
communication system to say nothing of ruining all space flight aid stations. Hey, we'd better get out there with the ultrasonic generator. It wouldn't work on that moon, Happy. There's no atmosphere to transmit the high-frequency sound of the insects. They've got to be brought under control. Smoke and rockets. Well, there are 100 men on that station. They can't even be evacuated because they can't open the space locks. What's wrong with the power unit? Communications picked up automatic signals that indicate a relay didn't work. If somebody could get there, get inside the power unit shell and flip that switch... Research station would have power restored. But how about the insects? Doctor, the new Delta Ray, would that destroy the insects? Yes, but it had to be focused so that the rays wouldn't penetrate the shell, or it would destroy the men inside, too. Is there a Delta Ray here in Chargon? No, the nearest one is in Jupiter City. Robbie, you blast off from moon number three and get that power on. Happy and I'll go to Jupiter City for the Delta Ray and join you on the moon research station. There's the research station, Happy. We'll cut our speed and circle. I'll get the Delta Ray ready. Now, don't turn it on till I give you the word. We've got to be sure of our focusing range. Yes, sir. Wow, look at that dome. Just like the one at Chargon. Covered with beetles. Well, there's Robbie's ship near the dome. One of the majors got the power on yet. I don't think so. We'd be hearing from him. Just look at those insects all around the station. At least they aren't attacking the power unit, dome. Major Robertson calling Commander Corey aboard Terra 5. Major Robertson calling Commander Corey. Corey here. Where are you, Robbie? I'm in a pretty tight spot, Commander. Did you get the Delta Ray? What's the trouble? I was in my spacesuit walking toward the power unit shell when these compounded beetles attacked me, rolled all over me. When I beat them off, I fell into a crevice near the power shell, and I'm wedged in. We'll land and pull you out. I don't want to rush you, but these insects are eating my spacesuit. Commander's brushed them off the plastic face piece, but they're all over me. Any minute now, they're going to puncture the suit. We'll set the ship down right away. Happy, get out our spacesuits and some rope. There he is, Commander. He's really wedged in. Look at those beetles. There are hundreds of them down in the crevice and all over him. Robbie, can you read me? Yes, yes, sir. We're going to drop your rope. Grab it. Go ahead, Happy. Catch, Major. All right, hang on. We'll pull you up. Robbie, 
right shape. All right, half. Clean off your face piece. A beetle is half buried in it. They're all over you. Yeah, I know. They're all over you, too, sir. Get to the ship quickly. We'll peel out of these spacesuits in the airlock and then turn the delta ray on the research station shell. I guess we'll have to carry the major, sir. All right, Happy. Come on. Delta ray is focused, Happy. Give it another charge. Hey, it's working. The beetles are dropping off the shell like, like flies. Well, this ray works better than the ultrasonic generator. See that, Robbie? Yeah. Really shoveling them up. How's your leg? A little better. Good. As we wipe out the beetles, we'll land and turn the power unit on. Hey, if we can clean this up and blast off for Terra pretty soon, we'll, we'll be able to get the major back for the interplanetary award ceremony. Funny, I almost forgot. Thank you. Thank you very much. Go on up, Major. Uh, the commander's ready to give you the medal. Quiet, Happy. The commander's going to speak. Fellow citizens of the United Planets, it's my privilege and honor as last year's recipient of the Interplanetary Award to present this symbol of courage and service to the current winner. It's a special source of pride to me because the award goes to a member of my own space patrol. Major, the commander's looking this way. He wants you to go up. The choice this year was a difficult one for the committee, and the person chosen by them has declined the honor. But, Major, I... I Quiet, half. The commander's speaking. Yes. The selected candidate, Major Robertson, security chief of the Space Patrol, feels that the interplanetary award should go to the man who risked his own life to save another, and thereby help save the lives of a hundred men. So, in a special session, the committee accepted the Major's suggestion. And I shall now present the Interplanetary Award to a member of the Corps of Cadets, Cadet Happy. Huh? Me? Me? But, but I, 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 I... Go on, Happy. Get up there. Hey, Happy. Half. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll have to ask Major Robertson to accept the award for Cadet Happy... It seems the courageous winner of the Interplanetary Award has just fainted. An exciting preview of next week's thrilling Space Patrol adventure in just a moment. But first, gang, here it is. Here's the only way to get a pair of Space Patrol space binoculars. Now, all you do is... Uh-oh. Here's a radio ray from Terra. Boys and girls... This is your commander, and I have a message for you that's so important, I've interrupted Dick Tufel. Now, here's my message. Today is positively the last time we can offer you a pair of official space binoculars. This is the greatest offer we've ever made, and it's one item I feel that every one of you should have. All those thousands and thousands of boys and girls now have their space binoculars. I know for a fact that many of you have still not sent in, so don't wait. This is important and vital. Send in today for your Space Patrol space binoculars. This is absolutely the last time we can make this sensational offer. Hurry out. Thank you, Commander. And boys and girls, remember this. These are not flimsy goggles. They're real, full-size, full-field, four-power binoculars made of long-lasting plastic. Real, full-size, full-field, four-power binoculars that make everything in the distance look bigger, closer, clearer. The revolutionary new binoculars you wear on your head. Thrills and fun galore. 
You can identify buildings way off in the distance, spot planes, study birds, watch fire-off traffic, read distance signs, and do lots and lots of other things with your space binoculars all year long. Now, to get a pair, buy a box of Instant Ralston. Then, with your name and address, send 25 cents in coin and an Instant Ralston box top to Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. If you don't agree, your binoculars are tops. Return them, and we'll return your money. That's Space Patrol, Box 686, St. Louis, Missouri. And now, an exciting preview of next week's thrilling Space Patrol adventure. Buzz and Happy have just left Terra 5 to enter a damaged spaceship far out beyond the Pluto orbit. They've entered the wrecked ship in their spacesuits to rescue two unconscious men. Around the ship, huge chunks of metal hurtled through space on an unknown orbit. You'll have to carry them, Happy. You take this one, I'll handle the big fellow. Yes, sir. Hey, Commander. The ships are swerving right into that stream of metal fragments. I thought I set the controls to keep pace with them. Aha! Those fragments aren't going in a straight line. They're in a swirling motion like a whirlpool. Hey, Commander! They're battering the ship to pieces. They're breaking us up. we got to get these men inside, quickly. Before the fragments puncture the ship. Be sure to be with us next Saturday for the exciting story, The Strange Gift of the New Star, when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and Good Hot Ralston again bring you Space Patrol! High adventure in the wild, vast reaches of space, visions of daring in the name of interplanetary justice. Travel into the future with Buzz Corey, Commander-in-Chief, of the Space Patrol! Space Patrol, an original Mike Moser production starring Ed Kemmerer as Commander Corey and Lynn Osborne as Cadet Happy was written by Lou Houston and directed by Larry Robertson. Other players were Ken Mayer and Bela Kovach. Dick Tufeld speaking. Now don't forget to tune in next Saturday and every Saturday when Wheat Checks, Rice Checks, and good hot Ralston again presents the new exciting Space Patrol! Be sure to see another exciting Space Patrol program on your local ABC TV station. Consult your paper for time and channel. Space Patrol comes to you transcribed from Hollywood. This is ABC Radio Network. For a Christian sci-fi with adventure, drama, and a touch of romance, Read Quantum Spacewalker, Anira's Assignment. Anira Henderson was used to dealing with every kind of trauma in her job as an emergency room tech. Then, the disaster that wiped out her family, except for her brother Jarl, landed tragedy squarely on her own lap. In the midst of her grief, she is recruited to join an elite force of universe healers. Fixing radically broken things has always been her life's dream. But, this just took it to a whole new level. Read Quantum Spacewalker and here is assignment by Grace S. Gross. Starting on March 4th, get ready to listen to the C.S. Lewis series, The Chronicles of Narnia in a seven-episode special. Now back to the old-time radio show.
started all that time ago. The home of the dragon Smaug and the dwarves' long-lost treasure. The sun had set by the time they reached the lake town of Esgaroth, a town that had been built after the destruction of Dale by the dread Smaug. The boat gently eased into a little bay between the town and the shore, for Esgaroth was built entirely over the waters of the lake. There, the boatmen moored the boat and left wearily for their homes and their beds. And Bilbo set about releasing the dwarves. You stupid hobbit! I am sure I am black and blue all over. Now look! Now, 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 will you listen? Dwarves, listen. Are you still in prison or are you free? Hmm? Well, I mean, all this moaning and groaning and... and, and where's your gratitude? Gratitude? I mean, yes. Do you think I enjoyed the trip down the river? Shame on you. Shame on you. I'm, 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 I'm only a hobbit. And, you, and you're dwarves. Yes, <laughs> great big... You ought to know. You're supposed to be brave warriors. Warriors? I've seen you. Now, listen. Now, just, now, you stop all these foolish complaints and let us consider what is next to be done. Eh? Oh, well, well, Mr. Baggins, what do you think is our next move? Oh, well, uh, well I suggest that we go go into Eskaroth. Huh? What, at this time of night? Certainly. Perhaps the, the lake men will give us food and shelter. Yes, yes. yes. I agree. Uh, let us make ourselves known. I am grandson of the last king under the mountain. Esgaroth and all these lands are part of my domain. I shall enter in upon my inheritance. That would be nice. <laughs> Come, to the gates of Lake Town. All right. Come along, all of you. Come on, Owen.
Hunt. I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thor, king under the mountain. I wish to see the master of this town. King under the mountain? <laughs> Who are your companions? These are my faithful followers of the race of Durin. Uh, yes, and... Uh... Uh, uh, and uh, Mr. Baggins, the hobbit who has traveled with us out of the West. But the master is feasting. Let us have no more words or your master may have something to say to you. Come, let your king enter. Very well. Open the gate. <laughs> Open the gate. Now we shall... The captain of the guard with six of his men led them over the bridge, through the gates, and into the marketplace of the town. From a great hall shone many lights, and there came the sound of many voices. The dwarves stood at its doors, blinking in the light and looking at the long, crowded tables. What is this? I am Thorin, son of Thrain, son of Thor, king under the mountain. I return. Captain, what means this? Who are these creatures? Master, I think these are the prisoners who escaped from the elven king. Oh. Is this true? It is true that we were wrongfully waylaid by the Elven King and imprisoned without cause. But neither lock nor bar may hinder the homecoming spoken of old. Nor is this town part of the Wood Elves' realm, but part of the ancient Dwarves' kingdom, which now I claim. What's this? He speaks truly, Master. Thraw was our king before Smaug destroyed the old town. Our king is come! They shall be avenged! <laughs> Welcomed in the town amid scenes of astonishing enthusiasm. Large house was given up to Torin and his company, and crowds sat outside and sang songs all day and cheered if any dwarf so much as showed his nose. Yeah, but I was not feeling particularly cheerful. I had not forgotten the sight of the mountain. Nor could I put thoughts of the dragon out of my head. <laughs> At the end of a fortnight, Torin began to think of departure. Autumn was now getting far on. The leaves were falling and the winds were cold. It would not do to allow the townspeople's enthusiasm to cool with delay. But at least one person was not sorry to see them go. The master of the town. The sooner this dwarf and his followers have gone, the better. <laughs> Let them go and bother Smaug and see how he welcomes them. What if Smaug gets angry and takes it into his head to attack the lake town and destroy us as he did Dale? Yes, the sooner they're gone, the better. And so, one morning, three large boats left Hesgadath, laden with rowers, dwarves, Mr. Baggins, ponies, and plenty of provisions.
The townspeople sang and cheered from the quay as the adventurers started north on the last stage of their journey. person thoroughly unhappy was me. In two days they rode to the northern tip of the Long Lake, where the river running led straight to the lonely mountain. They could all now see it, towering grim and tall before them. At the end of the third day they drew into the bank and disembarked, for the rowers would row no further. The ponies were loaded, the lakemen said farewell, Bilbo, Tareen, and the dwarves set out for the regions known as the Desolation of the Dragon. We all knew that we were drawing near to the end of the journey, and that it might be a very unpleasant end. All the same, they reached the foot of the mountain on the fourth day without mishap, and without seeing any signs of the fiery dragon. Tareen! Yes, Marlin, what is it? Over there! When the river comes out of that great cavern in the mountainside, that must be the south gate that the lake men told us about. They also told us that it was Smaug's front door. So let us make our way to the western face of the mountain and look for the hidden side door. If my grandfather's map is true, the entrance will be high up. So we have some climbing to do, my friends. Come, let us move away from these dark birds. They look like the spies of evil. Um, courage, dwarf! Forward! After yet another hard and difficult journey, their spirits lowering by the hour, the company made camp in a long valley on the western side of the mountain. Day by day, in parties, they toiled up and down the craggy mountainside, searching for the secret door. And day by day, they came back to their camp without success. But at last, unexpectedly, they found steps, cut into the rock, leading upwards and out of sight. Oh, this, this staircase seems to be going on forever. Oh, it's getting very narrow, too. Oh, look. You can see the ponies down there. Oh, I'd really not, rather not look, if you don't mind. It's rather a long way down. The steps are opening out into a sort of ledge. Can we rest here, Tarin? Oh, we can't go any further. So we might as well. Can't go any further, why not? Well, look ahead. This is as far as the steps lead, to this little shelf here. Well, oh. then, then, then this must be the secret side door. What must be? Well, here, yeah, this cliff face. But there is no keyhole, no doorpost or lintel to be seen. It is as smooth as glass. Well, exactly, exactly. It's too smooth. 
The rest of the mountain is rough and pitted. This surface is as smooth and upright as Mason's work. I mean, look, even, even the colour's different. It's grey and the rest of the mountain's black. You're right, Bumbo. This was fashioned by craft, not by nature. Uh, come, my dwarves. Let us see if we can open it. Yes. All yes. push. Now get your shoulders to it. Yes. Ready? All together. No! Yes. Oh. And again. No! Don't, don't push me. Push the door. And again. No! Oh. Oh. Another door. <laughs> it's no good, Tori. Now don't give up so easily. Again, all together. No! Never move. Not if we go at it for hours. It is solid rock. Baggins and his door. What now, Bilbo? Hmm? I said, what now? What now? Yes. Ah, yes, well, that's just what I was wondering. What now? <laughs> yes. What now? That is just what oh, I was... leave him be, Balin. Oh, it's getting colder. Yes. Today is the last day of autumn. And winter comes after autumn. <coughs> Of course! Durin's Day. What's this about Durin's Day? When the last moon of autumn and the sun are in the sky together. Today is the last day of autumn, and the sun is still up. And look! Yes. New moon! But what difference does it make what day it is? Shh, 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 shh. There's the thrush. The map was right. It's only an old thrush knocking a snail against the rock. And it should be quiet, all of you. Magic is afoot. You remember? Elrond told us the moon letters on the map said, stand by the grey stone when the thrush when the thrush knocks, and the setting sun with the last light of Durin's day will will shine upon the keyhole. And today is Durin's day. And there is the thrush knocking on the grey stone. Now we must wait for the sunset. Thrush is waiting too. The moon is risen. The darkness is closing in. The sun is sinking fast. It's setting behind clouds. How can it shine upon the keyhole? Shh, shh, shh. No, no, look. There's a gap in the clouds. See? The sun is shining on the stone. Oh! There's a little hole in the rock. The thrush has gone. The key, Torin. Uh -oh. Your grandfather's key. Yes, Before yes. the sun sets. Oh, Come on, the key. Oh, the key. Right. Here, here. It fits. Yes. Now, everyone, push. No. Oh. Ah, we found it. The secret door. <laughs> we found it. Well, forget where we are. This is the lonely mountain, and somewhere through that door lies smell. Yes, you're quite right, as usual, Mr. Baggins. Quite right. Well, my dwarves, now is the time for our esteemed burglar to perform the service for which he was included in our company. Yes. yes. Now is the time for him to earn his reward. Yes. Earn my reward? What if you mean you think it's my job to go into the secret passage first? Oh, Torrin Oakenshield, may your beard grow even longer? Well, you can just say so at once and have done with it. I could refuse, you know. Uh, However, I don't think I shall. 
Perhaps I have begun to trust my luck more than I used to. Gandalf often said I had more than my share. So, I think I will go and have a peep and get it over. Wait here. Uh, well, good luck, Bilbo. Yes, uh, good, good luck, luck Bilbo. Good luck. Yes. Be careful. Yes. Be careful. Come back safely. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much. I have the magic ring. I shall wear it and I shall go to Smaug's cabin and, and see what he's up to. Oh, dear me. What a fool you are, Bilbo Baggins. What use have you got for dragon? Guarded treasures. <laughs> oh, if only I could wake up and find this beastly tunnel was my own front hall at home. What's that light? That must be a fire. Oh, certainly getting warm. What's that? Fast asleep, he lay, a vast red-gold dragon, wisps of smoke and flame thrusting from his jaws and nostrils, his huge tail coiled, and his great bat-like wings folded. Beneath him and about him on all sides of the immense cavern which was his home lay countless piles of precious things, gold wrought and unwrought, gems and jewels, and silver red-stained in the ruddy light. There were coats of mail, helms and axes, swords and spears, and rows of great jars and vessels filled with a wealth that could not be guessed. Bilbo's heart was pierced with enchantment and with the desire of dwarves, and he gazed motionless at the gold beyond price and count, almost forgetting its frightful guardian. I smell you and feel your air. I hear your breath, thief. Help yourself. There is plenty and to spare. Oh, yeah. No, 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 thank you. Oh, oh, smile. The tremendous. I, I didn't come for presents. I I only wished to ha have a look at you and, and see if you were as great as the tales say. And am I? Uh, truly, songs and tales fall utterly short of reality. Oh, oh Smaug, the chiefest and greatest of all calamities. Mm. Who are you? From um, I know the smell of dwarves, no one better. I am the, I am the friend of bears and the, uh, the guest of eagles. Uh, I am the clue finder and, and the ring winner. I am the luck wearer and, and, and the barrel rider. Lovely titles, to be sure. <laughs> but what are you, thief barrel rider, eh? I don't know your smell. Well, you don't know everything. <laughs> oh, smile the mighty. 
Is that so? Well, I certainly know that you're here to steal my treasure. Wrong? Oh, oh Smug the Dreadful. Surely, oh, oh Smug the unaccessibly wealthy, you must realize that your success has made you some bitter enemies. We, we, we have come over hill and under hill by wave and wind for revenge. Revenge? The king under the mountain is dead. And where are his kin that seek revenge? The Lord of Dale is dead. And where are his sons' sons that dare approach me? I kill where I wish, and none can resist. I laid low the great warriors of old when I was young and tender. Now I am old and strong. Strong. Strong deep in the shadows. Yes, uh... Uh, I, I have always understood that dragons were softer underneath, especially in the chest. Your information is antiquated. I am armored above and below with iron scales and hard gems. No blade can pierce me. Mm. It, truly. Uh, th there can be nowhere found the equal of Lord Smaug, the impenetrable. What magnificence to possess a waistcoat of fine diamonds. Yes, it is rare and wonderful indeed. Look, what do you say to that? Uh, dazzlingly marvellous. Perfect. Rolling over like a dog at his age. Oh, look, there's a large bare patch over his left breast. Uh, uh, flawless, staggering. Well, I, I, I must not detain your magnificence. Ponies need some catching, I believe, after a long start. And so do burglars. <laughs> <laughs> Dragon. Steve, I heard you run up the tunnel. It says well for you that it is too small for me to follow. Battle Rider, I don't know your smell, but if you are not one of those men of the lake, you had the help. They shall see me. And remember who is the real king under the mountain. Oh, oh. Bilbo! Oh. It is Bilbo! Oh, 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 Oof. 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 Be quiet, you stupid old fright! Yeah. Mm? Uh, now, Bilbo, 
Have you discovered anything? Uh, yes, yes, I have. Smaug has a bare patch in his armor, just over the left breast. Ah. A champion archer might be able to kill him with an arrow in there. Ah, well done, Bilbo. Anything else? Yes. He's guessed that we came from Lake Town. He'll be going there for revenge. Oh, that's he also knows where we're hiding, so our only hope is to keep well in the tunnel and close the door. Yes, yes. Tell me, Bilbo, when you saw the treasure, did you see... Did you see the Arkenstone? The Watchstone? Arkenstone? What's that? It was the dwarves' greatest treasure, a great white gem, hmm. the Arkenstone of Thrain. It was like a globe with a thousand facets. It shone like silver in the firelight, like water in the sun, like snow under the stars, like rain upon the moon. Conflict with Shadows A fast-paced story of invading darkness. The first in a series of light versus darkness, and the connection with the past to help fight for the future. When the Bathshe invade, John Vega and Nicolay Dan must come together to stop them from destroying their worlds. It will lead them far beyond known space only to find out that this is more than a battle for territory, but a battle for the souls of mankind. But there is always hope. Pick up a copy of Conflict with Shadows at your favorite online bookstore. You have been listening to the Strangers and Pilgrims podcast.